Houston, it's been a year and a half since our last interview. Yeah, a year and a half. Okay, we're back at LA Film School yep. in Hollywood. Yep. Beautiful place, by the way. And you've lent us this uh, conference room and we have three of your students, is that right? Yes. Here with us? Yes. Uh, Rod, Kyle, and Mac. Yep. Great, I don't know if we can, we, we will be having questions from them, so for any of the viewers listening, um, or any of the listeners, sorry, um, that you may be hearing alternate voices which are not uh, Houston or myself, so that's what this is. And we also have a music class in the back, is that Perfect. right? So we may be yeah. hearing a synthesizer or two. And yeah, so. you, you never know what you're gonna get. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, it's very cool, and I wish I wish people could appreciate this view, by the way, too, so. That's great. It's beautiful here. Um, so your your book here is you're gonna need a bigger story, yep. and that is some of the old book or just an offshoot of uh, Make Your Story Really Stinkin' Big. When I, when I started to write the, the new book, it was really just meant to be an updated version of uh, the first book, Make Your Story Really Stinkin' Big. But once I started writing it, I ended up adding probably 80% new content to it just because within the two years since the first book was released, uh, so, much, so much of the industry changed, so much of technology changed, so much of culture changed just within that two year period that the new content that needed to be addressed was, was, was more than the old content. So, uh, so pretty much ended up being an entirely new book uh, with about 20% overlap. I know we've been talking a lot about uh, transmedia. What about the word superstory? Can you define what superstory is and how does it differentiate from a regular story? So one, one interesting thing about the transmedia space is, is just the, the word transmedia. And within the transmedia space even, a lot of people debate whether it's even good to use the term transmedia. People don't know what the word is. Uh, seems like a clunky term. Uh, if they if they do have the if they have heard the word they it, there's a misconception around exactly what it is and so there th there's always a debate of whether you use the term whether you don't use the term it's very inside baseball niche jargon industry term that sort of common people uh, laymen don't know or understand and so when I uh, released the the new book uh, the, I wanted to try to find some sort of jargon that was uh, seemed less technical and so I went with Superstory rather than just uh, just Transmedia and Superstory super simply meaning uh, super being uh, uh, something that in encompasses a multitude of things, uh, something bigger and uh, so when you're engaging in a transmedia philosophy you are naturally increasing the size of your IP and increasing the size of the story so uh, so that is that's where the super story term came from there's a there's a term within transmedia called hyperdiegesis which is a big ten dollar transmedia word that specifically refers to world building and um, if you break that word apart, hyper means super, and diegesis, like diegetic, means story. Mm -hmm. And so literally when you start to engage in world building, you're necessarily by definition engaging in building a super story, something that's much bigger than just a single story. You spoke in the beginning about the rapid change in the industry causing problems. Um, I wanted to know if you think that students should try to keep up to date on things that they've previously learned if by the time they graduate it'll already be kind of evolved? 100%. Everything changes so fast that now it's incumbent upon all creators 
not just students, but but professionals, especially professionals that have been in the industry a while. Uh, you know, the typical the typical you know thirty year screenwriter that's you know seen and done it all. It, they they find it difficult to really want to stay on top of things. I think students naturally, just because of the generation, uh, it, they've got they've grown up multi platform and they naturally learn all the new platforms and the, learn all the new stuff. Uh, but I think now we live in such an oversaturated, crazy, uh, uh, technologically advanced time that really, if if you want to stay relevant you need to figure out how to uh, utilize and maximize and leverage the new platforms and the new, um, the new touch points and the methodology that audiences are using every single day. And it's not necessarily because the theater is going away or, or Netflix is, is ensuring that everything streams. It's not necessarily that. I always put it in, in reference to the audience. And if you understand your audience and you can design to the audience, then uh, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be a better creator. And if you start to see audiences operating on multi-platforms, if you start, start to see audiences really gravitating today into podcasts. Podcasts are very big, they're very popular today, whereas two, three years ago, not as much. And, uh, but if you, you see a big push into podcast, then all of a sudden that should clue you in to not just there's an opportunity on a platform, but through the mindset of the audience. And once you start to understand the audience, you will be able to, to take that psychology and lace it through how you're gonna create your IP. I think a lot of the new platforms uh, with, with, with mobile, with, with, with podcast, with, uh, you know, like, like Alexa, you know, Alexa, Google Home, you know, all that stuff, I think understanding how that is starting to shift culture. Why are people using voice and why is voice coming back? It's almost like we're coming back to like a 1930s radio era, era again. I think instead of being, uh, instead of being um, threatened by that, that creators, screenwriters, directors, uh, authors, they, they should recognize that and use that as an asset and a tool to be able to leverage their IP into those things. What I typically get is, well, I don't know how to make a podcast. I don't know how to make an Alexa skill. I don't know how to do any of that stuff. And you know, it's like you can't teach old dogs new tricks. And I, I just don't believe that. Uh, I, 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 there's, you know, I, I, I tell a lot of people there's this, uh, there's this amazing website that you can go to that teaches you how to do anything in the world. It's g o o g l e dot com. You go there, type in how do I make a podcast. How do I create an Alexa skill? How do I do something on IGTV? And you can spend seven or nine or three or 48 hours reading and learning how to do all this stuff. And all of a sudden, now you have, a, you have an extra tool on your Batman belt as a screenwriter, as a producer, as a director, not necessarily to replace your movie or your television show, but to be able to augment it in a way uh, that is, is flowing in line with culture. And that, I think, is empowering rather than threatening. So I'm a big advocate of never stop learning, especially as a creator, because if you never stop learning, you're always going to be in line with your audience. Excellent. Anything else, gentlemen? How do we differ the how do we differentiate between transmedia as like a marketing strategy compared to like a storytelling strategy? Should I be using transmedia in, in my storytelling part of it, or is it just a um, marketing ploy. Sure. 
So I th- historically, bad transmedia has been, I think, rooted in marketing. And what, and what happened, nothing against marketing. Marketing people, great, you need good marketing. Marketing is not a bad term. It's not a pejorative term, term at all. But where, where transmedia breaks down is when creators push the transmedia off to the marketing people that really don't ha- understand the story or or really they don't have the right to extend the story. And so so a lot of times you will see marketing marketing heavy transmedia pushes that are light on story and it's more about, you know, just trying to exploit a medium, create an entry report for an audience, and there isn't a valuable extension of the story. So uh, so for me, the best transmedia comes from uh, flows through the creator into all these touch points to where now the mobile game and the comic book and the uh, Facebook uh, uh, Live and the IGTV series, whatever it is, the podcast, they're not just marketing tools, they're storytelling tools. And the big difference is how much story are you getting? Is it, is it story first or is it just promotional first? The more promotional it is, the less valuable it is to the audience. I always liken it to, to you know, I, uh, me and my wife have two dogs. We, we love our dogs. We're, we're like weird dog people that like love our dogs too much. And so I, <clears throat> excuse me, I always use the analogy that you need to feed your audience and feed your fans like you feed your dogs. And that, that if that's the first lesson you learn as a kid, if, when you get a dog, is that you need to feed your dog every day. It's, it's your responsibility. That's what my dad told me. He said, if we're getting a dog, you're going to take care of it. It's your responsibility to feed it every single day. And, and creators need to have that same attitude when it comes to their, to their fans. It's their responsibility to continue to feed the fans. It's, it don't, don't slough it off into a marketing person or to a publicist or to other people, to PAs and interns. You need to now understand this as a creator. How do I feed the audience? Which then begs the question, what's the best food? To feed the audience, the best food to feed the audience is story. It's 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 uh, as a Game of Thrones fan, the best thing you can you can feed me is uh, Game of Thrones story, right? Not necessarily a Game of Thrones commercial or trailer. I get excited about those things, but those are like sugar rushes, right? So if you eat a, if you eat a bunch of sugar, if you feed your dog just sort of junk, uh, that may you know if you feed it a treat. Make it excited, but that's not going to nourish them over the long term. And so, so the thing that nourishes the audience the most is just honest to God, good story. And so, if you if if you tell me as a Game of Thrones fan that there is great story delivered on Instagram, I don't care that it, that it's Instagram. I go there for the story, and I I consume that story. And now there's a brand equity that that continues to strengthen to me for the, the, the Game of Thrones brand in general because they fed me. And the more you feed your audience, uh, the more loyal they are, right? Because, I mean, if you don't feed your dog, what happens? They, they either die, they go somewhere else for food, they turn on you and eat you like Ramsey Bolton in the Game of Thrones reference. But uh, either any way you cut it or, uh, or they, they, the, your neighbor who has the food lures them away. Right, and so now in an oversaturated environment, you have all these people running around saying, "Hey, come here! I'll feed you over here. I'll feed you over here." And now there's more competition in the marketplace. And so, 
And so for me, the thing that differentiates marketing and transmedia is what kind of food are you, are you feeding your audience? Is it story or is it just promotional? And, and if the creator is involved and it's part of the creative vision, it's more likely than not will be more story than it is promotional. If as soon as the creator disconnects and hands it off to the digital marketing people, then it, they, they may call it transmedia, but it's probably just gonna be a big marketing ploy. My question was, how do we approach transmedia as an independent filmmaker? A lot of us are working on very tight budgets and low resources and having a hard enough time just trying to create our one story. How do we approach transmedia and should we be trying to actually execute all these projects or just develop them? Sure. So this is, this is a question I get a lot, is how does this apply to the independent filmmaker? How does it apply to somebody who's not Marvel or Star Wars or Harry Potter? Uh, and uh, I think that while I love Star Wars and Game of Thrones and, and Marvel and all the big stuff, I think this is more necessary for the independent filmmaker than even those big brands. Primarily because the independent filmmakers don't have the P&A budgets that uh, that you know large movies have, and they don't have the brand awareness that these large brands already have. And so, if if you're an independent independent filmmaker operating on you know a hundred thousand dollar feature, or a twenty thousand dollar feature, or or doing something even more shoestring, the seven thousand dollar feature, you have to figure out every single way possible to build audience. You have to figure out every single way possible to compete in a marketplace with, with not just Goliaths like Star Wars and Marvel, but, but everything, everything competes against everything now. And that's, that's the, what we're getting with the, where we are in this entertainment landscape is it's commoditized, it's oversaturated, and uh, the competition is just competition for eyeballs. And so what's really interesting, recently Netflix, uh, the CEO of Netflix said their biggest competition isn't Amazon or Hulu or HBO, their biggest competition is Fortnite. And they're cons consistently losing to Fortnite, which is a video game. And so, so why do they say that? It's because Fortnite, even though it's an, in a different industry uh, necessarily uh, from video games to film or television, is just taking away eyeballs. And so now filmmakers today, especially indie filmmakers, are competing not just against the other films that are in the market, that, uh, that are in the festival market, or, or, or the films that are streaming, films that are in, in the theater. They're competing against the films that are in the theater, the films that are streaming, every film ever made, and anything that's on TV, and anything that's on Apple Music or Spotify, and any podcast that's on the podcast store, any uh, video game on Steam, on Xbox, PlayStation, on mobile. You're competing against YouTube. You're competing against Instagram. You're competing against everything because everything is in competition with everyone's for, for everyone's eyeballs you're just competing for the attention of the consumer or the audience attention is the game that's the that's the that's the thing that that everyone's fighting for you know again it's like the game of thrones it's 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 everybody's fighting for the iron throne in entertainment everyone is fighting for the attention of the audience and there's so many things pulling attention now it's a it's a it's a tougher fight and this this has never been like this uh, ever, and, but today studios they they 
release films around new video game releases. When the new Halo video game is going to drop, the studios avoid that weekend because they know anyone 18 to 30 is going to be playing Halo all weekend. They're not going to be going to the box office. So all that to get back to saying, if you're the, the small independent producer that has a low budget, you have to figure out a way to compete. You have to figure out a way to survive, to thrive, to exist in this market. And it's tough to outpunch everybody. You can't overpower Star Wars. You can't overpower Fortnite or, or any of these other things. Now you have to be craftier. Right, so you can't just inundate the world with marketing, with with posters, with trailers. You can't buy TV spots. So what can you do? And so if you have a good idea, if you have a good story, and you're a great storyteller, now there's all these really interesting tools that we can use to now send your story out and capture the attention of the audience. Right, and so it's not necessarily about putting one fishing lure out there. Now now that we have so many tools, we can have 10 or 12 fishing lures out there uh, simultaneously uh, fishing in 12 different ponds all, all the time looking for audience. And, uh, and so what I get though is independent creators saying, one, I don't know how to do it, or even if they know how to do it, they say, uh, that seems like a lot of work, right? And that, like that to me, that is, is such, the wrong mindset to have, right? Because we talked about this in the first round of interviews we did, is I always encourage independent filmmakers to be thinking as entrepreneurs rather than just an artist. And because when you're, when you're creating IP, when you're creating, uh, when, when you're launching a film, you're launching a small business. You're, you're setting up an LLC, you're staffing it with a crew, and you're creating something. And you have to think, of yourself just like the guy who's opening the coffee shop or the woman that's opening the pizza shop or the family that's opening the candle store down the street, you have to have that same mentality. And so though, like, if you understand the amount of hours and hard work it is to launch your own business, then you, you they, independent filmmakers understand it in, in context of a film. They're fine with spending 18 hours a day on a film set for you know 12 straight days. They, that's fine because that's, they think that's just within the context of what they do. But now it's broadened to where now you have to learn how to, uh, you have to learn how to broaden the scope of that to have, a, uh, have a more, more skill sets at your disposal in order to compete in this crazy market. So as, as a pizza shop owner can't say, well, uh, I love to make pizza. That's my thing. I'm not going to worry about the bookkeeping because, you know, who cares about that? Or I'm not going to worry about, uh, you know, the front of the house. I'm not going to worry about these other things. All I'm going to do is make my pizza. The, the business owner, the chef may, but the business owner has to concern themselves with everything. They have to know the full scope of everything. And they have to be able to put in the hours and the work to be able to figure that stuff out if they want a successful business. And even, even when they do that, most small businesses fail and, and they fail primarily either because of lack of quality or they don't figure those other things out, right? They, don't, they can't figure out how to compete. And so, so it's such an audacious thing to say, you want to be a filmmaker for the rest of your life. This is your dream and what you wanna do is you wanna live your life professionally making movies for the rest of your life. That is such a first world crazy dream to have, which is an awesome dream. 
that, that if it's in your heart, 100% go for it. But you have to understand how rare that is and how audacious that is. And the big disconnect with in, especially independent filmmakers is they have this audacious dream of, of how they want to live the rest of their life just making the movie like their own movies and that's their job forever. They have this audacious dream, but at the same time don't want to go the same audacious route to be able to put in the work to learn all the stuff you need to do to compete to do to make that happen. Right? And what they say to me is they say, well, Tarantino didn't do that. Right? I mean, Tarantino broke in, like, you know, Beyonce doesn't do this, or like, you know, they, 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 point to, they point to these people that, one, broke in in a different era, first of all. Like, like we, we talk about how fast things change now. Like, things have changed from 2019, like 2015 to 2019, completely different, let alone when Tarantino broke in in the, the mid-90s. Right, like you, it's not the same world. It's not the same thing, and and the problem that I think people have is they look at Tarantino or they look at Scorsese. They'll look at these people. Scorsese doesn't do transmedia. I don't need to do transmedia, right? the The problem with that is is you're not Scorsese, and and it's kind of a kind of a tough yet. Let me just say, you're not Scorsese yet. You're not Tarantino yet, right? Like when I was a kid, played baseball. My dad was my baseball coach. And, and when, you, when you teach kids to play baseball, you teach them to catch a ball with two hands, right? You just catch a ball with two hands so the ball doesn't pop out of your glove, right? Real simple thing. My dad takes me to a professional baseball game and I, I'm watching King Griffey Jr. in the outfield catching fly balls and he's catching it with one hand. He's catching it behind his back. He's catching it like sort of down by the ground. He's doing all these crazy things. And I say, Dad, you tell me I have to catch with two hands, but King Griffey Jr. is not catching with, with two hands. Why can't I just catch with one hand like him? He, and he looked at me and said, son, if once you get to be as good as King Griffey Jr. and once you make the major leagues, you can do anything you want, right? And so, but until then, you catch it with two hands, right? And so, so right now, I think like independent filmmakers should not map their actions based on the super successful top cream of the crop directors and producers and writers. I think that's a mistake. As far as craft goes, 100% map your actions after those people. Like you can learn so much about film, the craft of filmmaking from Tarantino, obviously. But I'm not, I'm not talking about that because the creation of the product is just one component of what it takes to be successful in the industry. Right? So you have to have sort of a collection of things, sort of a line that you need to put together to be able to have a successful YP, to be able to have a successful business. If, if you, you mean, filmmakers know this, you can make the greatest movie in the world. If you don't know how to distribute it well, no one will see it. Uh, you, you could be the greatest writer in the world and write the greatest script, but if, but if, but if your DP doesn't know what he's doing or she's doing, then, then the, the film comes out poorly. Like, you ha like it takes more than just your individual talent to be able to pull this thing off. And so when it comes to craft, map your actions with the, with the big folks. But, but at the same time, understand and be self-aware of where you are in your career. And, and you need to say, you know what? One day I can be Tarantino, one day I can be Scorsese, but I'm not now. So what do I use? What can I use? How do I use everything possible in order to position myself in a way that I can get there? The path is there, 
right? But the world is different than when Steven Spielberg started shooting movies. It's just a different world, right? And it's good to like read about Steven Spielberg and the whole thing, but, but, but you can't say, well, Steven Spielberg did this, so I don't have to do it, or I can do it because he did it or whatever, right? So it's just a whole different thing. So I'm very bullish on the fact that independent creators need a multi-platform transmedia super story more than anybody in order to compete and in order to be able to make a splash in this oversaturated world. I don't think it's just for the big guys. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, Blair Witch, I mean, that's what Blair Witch did back the in the Blair day, right? I mean, sure, Blair, sure. I mean, that was like sort of that, that blurring of reality and fiction that, that I mean, I, I saw Blair Witch the, the first day it was released uh, and didn't know what it was. Me, me and my girlfriend, now wife, we were in college for, I think, we're freshmen in college. And we, um, we were walking by an indie movie theater in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we wanted to watch a movie. It was noon, and we didn't know, like, it was just an indie theater. We didn't exactly know every, what the movies were. We said, oh, the Blair Witch Project, that seems, it had an interesting poster. And so we went and watched that, and, you know, it, it's hard now in today's context to really understand what, what that movie was like back then, but found footage wasn't a thing then it was like it, like we had never seen anything like that before and we were debating during the movie is this real is it not real like it didn't seem scripted uh but at the same time like you know how like how, like would they if this was real would they put it in the movie theater we were debating during the movie after the movie, we left, we were still debating it, uh, and we, we decided to go to the internet for the final arbiter of you know what's real and what's not. And when we go to the internet, what do we find? We find a collection of, of news broadcasts and police reports and all this stuff that made it seem like it was real. And it was the whole, you know, Orson Welles, uh, War of the Worlds thing, just, you know, sort of fast forwarded uh, to, to that, you know, to the, I guess was late, late 90s uh, when that was really 99 I think mm-hmm. was released I think so, yeah. and so uh, but 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 it was the blurring between the the fiction and reality for like two weeks no one knew if it was real or not and that's really that that conversation that zeitgeist uh, that it created is what really made that film so popular and then you know when the when the people came out in the video music awards MTV uh, MTV video music awards then you're like oh okay it's fake but for two weeks, they had everybody fooled. They, well, they didn't have people fooled. They just didn't know, you know. And the, and that was the conversation. And so, so they were like, you know, uh, that. And they were indie filmmakers. And you have to go, think back. I mean, you know, the budget of Blair Witch super small, and and they they understood the power. They said, we can't outpunch Sony. We can't outpunch Warner Brothers. We can't outpunch these guys. But what we can do is we could leverage the assets of today and the power of audience and the power of the internet to be able to create a conversation, to be able to create a brand equity around the story that ultimately ballooned the brand into something that could outpunch those other, the, those other folks at the box office. Super cool story, right? And now what's cool today, we have more tools, more opportunities to be able to do that as independent filmmakers, you know, especially Especially when, when um, maybe you may save this for a different question, but especially before financing, right? Like, like you know, trying to go out and get the money. That's transmedia can be a huge asset uh, for you when you when you go to actually finance your film. Uh, that if you don't understand it, then then you know maybe you don't get financing at all, 
uh, but if you did understand it, maybe you get you get the financing or get a larger block of the financing. So, what are your favorite two or three story worlds, and what makes them so special? Wow, that's a tough one. That's like you know, asking people like their favorite movies. I, I think I think uh, you know I'm a big um, I'm a big Star Wars fan, and and I have been since since I was a kid, and uh, I think that the that the the thing that made Star Wars outpace its contemporaries is the story world. And it's interesting, I always sort of put up these two, uh, we, I juxtapose two movies and, uh, by saying in, in 1977, two movies were released, uh, the same genre, the same budget, the same target market, the same everything, which was Close Encounters of a Third Kind in Star Wars. Uh, one did really well uh, and, and had a good box office return. Another became a $60 billion brand. And what, what's the difference? I, I think for me, clearly Steven Spielberg is the superior filmmaker from a craft standpoint. But what was it about Star Wars that made it outpace you know, uh, uh, Close Encounters, not just Close Encounters, but everything else. And uh, now, you know, obviously to Disney, it's still, it's still growing. And uh, the, uh, I was reading a book that actually had an interview with Steven Spielberg where they asked him that same question. They said, what, like, why did Star Wars do so much better? And he said there was two reasons. He said, George always had a bigger vision than just a single movie. And I always just saw Close Encounters as one thing. And then he said, two, because he had that big vision, he created a world that people wanted to explore. And he said, I didn't even consider my story by doing Close Encounters. I was just focused on the plot. So George Lucas really created a story world that people wanted to explore. And, uh, and, and that's something that I gravitated to uh, as a kid. And so I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of Star Wars. Um, I'm a fan. You know, there's things like Game of Thrones and, and Lord of the Rings, fantasy worlds I'm a big fan of. Um, but, but recently I've been um, really interested in story worlds that aren't sort of sci-fi epics or fantasy epics, sword and sandal type stuff. One tremendous story world that I don't think gets enough credit uh, uh, is Deadwood. I think Deadwood has a tremendous story world where, where uh, if, 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 if you watch Deadwood, anybody's watched Deadwood, is you know that the, the physical geographic size of Deadwood is not that big, but it had such a robust, interesting collection of characters that I thought that story world was tremendous in its story potential. And I'm, and I'm happy they're, they're gonna bring a feature film back to sort of cap the whole thing off. Um, but, but I always just loved that story world specifically. Another HBO show that I'm a big fan of, the story world, is Sharp Objects. And that was a recent, uh, recent show uh, with uh, was Amy Adams. And I thought the story world of Wind Gap of where that story was set was such an interesting, cool, weird, creepy Midwest town that I just thought that was like tremendous. So story worlds don't necessarily have to be the sword and sandal, Game of Thrones, Star Wars thing. They don't have to be set in space. They don't have to you know, have superheroes in them. Story worlds are interesting places that have great story potential. That's all a story world is. Is is if you understand your story world, you will always understand your story potential, and great story worlds will continue or have the potential of continually 
creating stories over time. And I can see by looking at Wind Gap, by looking at Deadwood, by looking at Star Wars, is you can, I, I can see multiple stories. Whether, they may not all be TV, they may not all be feature films, but there's something, right? And fans, like being a Sharp Objects fan or being a Deadwood fan, I don't care what platform they're delivered in. I don't care if it's a, as a film or a television show. If there's a Deadwood book, I'll read it. If there's a Deadwood game, I'll play it. If there's a Deadwood book of poetry, I'll read it. Because I like, I like to play in that world. That's the sandbox. And so just as a fan, those are, those are Douglas Adams. I'm a big fan of Doug, Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I think that's an underrated story world as well. But, uh, but those, I didn't give you two or three. I gave you like seven. But but those are the, the things that I lean to. It'd be interesting to see if Philip K. Dick were still alive, what story worlds would have come from his stories. Sure. Because you could go so many different places with it. A hundred percent. And one, and it's really interesting, is uh, for independent filmmakers, a lot, of, a lot of filmmaking and financing and selling a script is, is you have to generate pre-awareness. You have to have some sort of you know brand awareness to be able to sell to the studios or, or get something optioned. And that's you know, is it based on a book? Is it based on you know something like that? Uh, that's what a lot of independent film uh, uh, independent filmmakers and writers get into. Is I write a script and it's great, but it has no brand awareness or no pre-awareness engineered. So I uh, no one will pick it up. No one will option it. There's a lot of stuff in the public domain. Uh, especially in the sci-fi genre, that have tremendous story worlds, including some Philip K. Dick stuff. Uh, you know, Isaac Asimov had great story worlds. Most of his stuff is in the public domain. Jules Verne had tremendous story worlds, and all of his stuff is in the public domain. The Wizard of Oz, one of the greatest story worlds of all time, Oz, is in the public domain, which means anybody, any of us, can do a Wizard of Oz project, uh, Wizard of Oz project set in the story world of the Wizard of Oz. And so, so that's an interesting asset to be able to identify uh, Philip K. Dick stuff, uh, Isaac Asimov stuff, uh, uh, Jules Verne stuff, Wizard of Oz stuff, and say, here's the sandbox. I don't necessarily want to retell the Wizard of Oz. Dorothy's story is already told. But the story world gives me a sandbox in which to operate, in which to play. I'll tell a completely different story uh, uh, in there that is just set in that world, but then allows me to use the pre-awareness of Oz to be able to leverage myself into a, a, a less risky proposition to you know, the, the studios, the networks, or the agents that I want to be able to, to send my stuff to. I think it's an underutilized asset of understanding what's in the public domain, tremendous story worlds that are there. Speaking of things that are in the public domain, how would fan fiction factor into transmedia? Fan fiction is a really important part of, of community building because fans, fans like to play in the sandbox themselves uh, and create. Strictly, definitionally, the, the fan fiction doesn't necessarily connect into the broader transmedia conversation. It, it only because it's not canon. And so when we're talking about transmedia, we're, 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 the, we're really talking about how do you extend a story across multiple platforms in a way that's canonized. And canon just means official, right? So th is this official Star Wars stuff or not? 
And if it's official Star Wars stuff, then uh, then it's going to be a, a transmediated extension. Uh, if it's not, it's just something. It's something else. It's it's a valuable part of your community building, and it's part of your participatory culture uh, as a creator, encouraging your fans to add in, uh, add their stories in. But for me as a fan, then th this is where it matters. For me as a fan of any IP, if I know something is canon, then I will, I'm I'm more likely to check it out because I know it's official. But if you just write your own short story about Game of Thrones and it's not canon, I may check it out, but I really have no incentive to check it out, especially if I don't know you, right? So, so when we're talking about how do, you, how do you create the migration of the audience, the migration of the audience is generated based on canonization and not. And uh, for example, I was, I've never been a fan of Legos. Uh, not just the not the toys, but like I don't particularly love the Lego IP, um, and uh, like I didn't really I have just never been a huge fan of the movie. The song kind of irritates me. I step on Legos having a kid. Like there's this Lego thing that I have. So uh, so I don't love Legos to the point that where even though I love Star Wars, they had a Lego Star Wars cartoon that I didn't watch. And the reason I didn't watch it isn't because I hated Legos. That had something to do with it. But the Star Wars Legos cartoons uh, weren't canon. They weren't it wrapped into the continuity of the Star Wars universe. And so because I don't like Legos and this wasn't canon, I didn't watch it. I didn't need to. That wasn't part of the puzzle for me. But one day I see on Twitter that said, uh, Lucasfilm says, Star Wars Legos is now part of the continuity. It's now part of canon. So the first, the first episode, uh, uh, for example, of the new Star Wars Legos was, um, well, do you remember in The Force Awakens, in The Force Awakens, Han and Chewie, they have the Rathtars on the ship and the big monsters that, that, they, that they catch. And Finn says to, to Han, he says, you have Rathtars on the ship, how did you get Rathtars? And Han said, well, we used to have a bigger crew. And, and, they, and they move on and they don't, uh, they don't reference it anymore, right? First episode of Star Wars Legos shows how Han and Chewie got the Raftars, right? And it's canon, which means it's real. It's actually part of the puzzle. So guess what I do? Despite my hatred of Legos, I go watch the cartoon because I want that piece of the puzzle. The second episode of Star Wars Legos, if you remember back to The Force Awakens, Poe and Finn crash land on Jakku, and uh, Finn wakes up, doesn't know where Poe is, thinks he's dead, and then we find Poe at the end of the movie when they reconnect. Where's Poe been that entire time? Second episode of Star Wars Legos follows Poe on the adventure that he, that, that he goes on after he wakes up from the crash, and it's canon. Therefore, I, am now, I have incentive to watch it. Now, if that, ha if, if, if that had just been your short story or a, or a fan film or a fans made like the little stop motion Lego things like they do, that's cool. But me as another fan have no incentive to check that out. I may applaud you and give you a thumbs up and may, you know, but I don't necessarily know if I'll take my time to do that. So, so that's where the, I'm not anti-fan fiction at all. I think it's awesome for creators to encourage fans to play in their sandbox in a participatory way. I go so far as to say creators should encourage them to play in the sandbox and actually take the opportunity to canonize certain parts of fan fiction. 
Uh, and that's as a way, I don't know if it's sort of a contest way, but as a way to validate the fan base in a valuable way. So, so, so definitely I'm pro fan fiction, 100%, but definitionally when we're talking about transmedia, I consider it right outside the door just because of the canonization question. How do we as independent filmmakers use transmedia to elevate our production pitches or when we're trying to take on investments or get financing for our projects, how do we use transmedia to make that more easily accessible? So a, a question that I got after the first round of Fil Film Courage uh, uh, interviews we had was a lot of people asking me about how this impacts the the uh, the search for investment you know independent filmmakers independent creators are always looking for money and that's just part and parcel you have to figure out how to pay the crew you have to figure out how to you know, pay for the sets you have to buy insurance you have to do all these things so so money is 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 necessary and so a lot of people are out there trying to find a private equity investment into their film and uh, right now that's that's very difficult I mean you talk to any independent filmmakers they're gonna say the search for financing is one of the most frustrating Difficult things that that you do as a film as a filmmaker, and um, and that's why a lot of people pivot to things like um, uh, uh, Kickstarter or or Indiegogo because they want to crowdsource that. And unfortunately, most you know the, the vast majority of things on Kickstarter, the, the vast majority of films on Kickstarter don't get funded at all. And on average, films on Kickstarter get funded. Uh, at, at about twelve thousand dollars, and and if and if you raise twelve thousand dollars on Kickstarter to make a movie. I am rooting for you and hope you make the greatest $12,000 movie you've ever made. But if you want filmmaking to be your career and you don't want to be, you don't want filmmaking to be your side hustle, then we have to figure out how to, how to get beyond the $12,000 movie. And so a lot of my focus over the past year and a half has been working with independent creators on how to better position their films for investment, private equity investment. Um, and so, because a lot of people, a lot of filmmakers think transmedia is for the back end stuff. It's, it's after you make your movie and how to, you know, how to promote it or how to extend it or how to expand it. But, but I think you need to one front load your transmedia plan before you go out to get investment. One, if you, if while you're, while you're writing your script, while you're uh, shopping your script, while you're looking for financing for your script, you could be extending your IP and building audience the entire time. I mean, most, I mean, every writer that I know, when they, um, <clears throat> when they write a script, they're hustling that thing for two, three, four, sometimes, sometimes 10 years looking for investment or trying to get it optioned. And so if during that time that you're developing, hustling, shopping, uh, whatever you're doing, if during that time, the entire time, you're using the tools that we have available, podcasts, self-published novels, IGTV, short stories on Wattpad, uh, whatever it is, if you were just working the IP and building audience, what happens is when you finally get into the room with somebody, whether it's a production company for that you're pitching it to for, for you, if you want an option or to a private equity investor, uh, you can now have the data and the analytics of market pre-awareness to point to. Uh, because when you walk in the room with zero 
brand recognition and zero fans, you're having a different conversation than somebody that can point and say, I have 300,000 people who who love my IP that engage with me across four or five different channels. It's just a different conversation because you've you've switched the risk analysis. And that's one thing we talked about in one of the previous videos is, is studios, they don't necessarily love great content, they love low risk. And the way to, the, the way to skew the risk is to build audience, is just to have audience. And uh, when you have audience, all of a sudden people feel like you're safer. And so being able to walk into a finance meeting and point to audience gives you such a leg up because now you shift that risk analysis into your, uh, into your favor. If you watch Shark Tank, the first thing that, that, that the sharks ask people is how many units have you sold? They don't ask how much money you're looking for, what's, how much equity you're trying to give up. They ask those questions at the end. The very first question they say is how many have you sold? You want me to invest in your toothbrush? How many toothbrushes have you sold? Why do they ask that? They're asking that to, to gauge is this risky or is it not? And so somebody says, I've sold uh, 400,000 toothbrushes in the past year independently is less risky than the person that sold zero toothbrushes. And in, in the entertainment uh, space, it's the same exact thing. You, you want to be able to point to the data and the analytics to be able to prove audience. So I think there's, when, when we're talking about investment, I lean into Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, you don't think of him as somebody for, like from the film world or entertainment world, but you have to understand Warren Buffett's a businessman who understands investments. And a lot of the people that you go for investments, uh, you target for investment, aren't entertainment people. They're your rich orthodontist that's in your neighborhood that just has some money that you wanna be able to go and pitch this thing to. They're not entertainment people. It's the, the, it's the, the, the person that made a bunch of money in natural gas and oil or, or, or tech stock. They're business people. So you have to understand what motivates a business person to be able to, uh, to want to invest into, uh, into an opportunity. And uh, there's, there, I think there's two major components that you need to have. According to Warren Buffett, you need market pre-awareness and you need scalability. And so market pre-awareness is being able to show that there are people that want your product. Is there pre-awareness in the marketplace? We've seen this in Hollywood for the past 40 years when they say, is it based off a book? You know, if, you, if, 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 your, if your screenplay is based off a successful book, it will, it will get optioned faster than one that's not. And, and, and anybody who's out there shopping will, will attest to that. It, it, that's why the optioning, the, uh, the, the book optioning market, comic book optioning market is super competitive because people want to be able to get that market pre-awareness and leverage that into a deal. So you need that market pre-awareness, but you also need scalability. So what's the market opportunity in the long term? How, how big is this, uh, not big, in, how long is this investment? So. Is it, a, is it a two year window of, of revenue? Is it a one year window of revenue? Is it a 10 year window of revenue or a 20 year window of revenue? So how big can we make this thing? Is it just a one off or how big can we go? And so a lot of times we think about transmedia in the scalability aspect of it. How big can we make it? It can be toys and video games and, and TV and film and all these big things, right? That's great because that shows market opportunity, but we also need to use transmedia on a smaller scale to be able to shift the pre-awareness game. 
And so if you can show pre-awareness and scalability and just have a good idea, all of a sudden you have armed yourself with everything that you need to be able to go into uh, to an investment meeting and point to, uh, to, to you know, the, the assets that you have as far as your pitch. And so, so understanding how your pre-awareness shifts the risk and how your scalability increases market opportunity is a really valuable thing to, to, to have. And unless you use a multi-platform transmediated model, you're not gonna get either one of those things. So all that to say, we have to, we have to think in a broader term of what the IP is. I think this is the thing that, that Warren Buffett really, Warren Buffett really, uh, uh, in a commoditized market. So I talk a lot about the entertainment industry now being commoditized. And so what I mean by commoditized is there's a lot of people making similar products, right? And the competition in the marketplace is so crazy. We have zillion things on Netflix, a zillion things on Hulu, Amazon, anything that comes out in the theater, network TV, TV cable TV, premium TV. You know, we have like, every, it's entertainment is commoditized because there's so many options that everything is a little less special. And so Warren Buffett tells business people, don't make investments into products that are currently in commoditized markets unless they can shift pre-awareness they have good scalability and they have brand value. If you have brand value, all of a sudden you, you can survive in a commoditized market. Um, Warren Buffett also says that one of the things that help you, helps you compete in, a, in a, uh, a commoditized market is volume and diversification. So this is just business principles. So Warren Buffett says if, if, there's, if, the, if the market is oversaturated and there's, there's, there's like 100 times more stuff out there, then you actually need to produce more things into the marketplace, right? To be able just, just to be not washed away, right? Because we've gone from a pond to an ocean, and if you wanna make a splash in the ocean, you, you need to have more of a presence in that ocean. So volume is a strategy within a commoditized market, just general business principle. How does that now equate to entertainment, which is now commoditized? That means now we have to have, we have, to have more things, more stories into the marketplace. Well, Houston, it's, it's, it, how can I make more movies? Like it takes a long time to make a movie and I'm trying to make it like one movie, let alone 10 movies. Exactly, you can't make 10 movies simultaneously and put them all out at the same time. It's too hard, too expensive, too difficult. It takes, it's, it's just, it's impossible. So now we have to then use the second component, which is diversification. So now we, we, we have our movie that can be one touch point of the brand, maybe the tentpole of the brand, but now we're pushing volume through diversification. So now we're thinking about what are my digital assets? What, what are, what's my, my social assets? What are my immersive assets, AR, VR? Uh, you know, how can I have publishing involved? You know, what can, like how can I now push volume out on the front end and the back end to, and diversify that across mediums and platforms that now allow me to compete in the commoditized market. Why are we talking about this? Because the businessman that you're pitching to understands this stuff. The biggest, one of the biggest failings of independent writers and producers and filmmakers is when they go to pitch, they think they're pitching to themselves. That the person on the other side of the table thinks like them 
that if, if, if you're a filmmaker that leans into, uh, if you're a DP, and you may love your color palettes and your, your cinematography, and you may have storyboards, and you can talk about lenses and all these things. This is what you love. This is part of your art, and you're going to create the most, the, your most beautiful film ever. That's great. The odds are the, the orthodontist or the investment banker or the, the, the rich lady in the next seat doesn't understand that stuff, or even if she does, she may not be excited about it. What they understand is business, and what they understand is investment, and they understand rate of return and return on investment, they understand risk, they understand volume, they understand diversification, they understand branded ecosystems, and all this sounds like a foreign language. I can imagine all the people watching the video now, and, and I'm, I'm turning into the Charlie Brown teacher, wah, 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 because they say, I don't want to think about that stuff because I'm a writer, I'm a filmmaker, I just want to worry about making my movie. I just wish that person would have been born 30 years ago. Like if they were born, or, 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 or not just born 30 years ago, like active in the industry 30 years ago. If they were active in the industry 30 years ago, it's a different ballgame. Now, it's so competitive, the world's so different, you have to think about these other things. And so understanding, it's, it's empathy. It's empathy. It's, it's empathetic pitching. So if you understand what concerns that the other person has, then you will be better at pitching your project. You'll be better at positioning your, your, uh, your art and your project for investment. So what do investors care about? What do investors get excited about? What do they look for? And then how do I design my project and my, my proposition uh, in such a way that alleviates those concerns or those, they hit the touch points that excite them? And so the more you do that, the more successful you'll be at uh, in, in getting these investments. So if you know, if you know that, that investors are concerned about volume, diversification, uh, pre-awareness that shifts risk, scalability that increases market opportunity, why would you ever pitch anything that doesn't have any of that stuff there? And so, but the only way you're gonna be able to get that in an, in an entertainment perspective is using a multi-platform transmedia super story approach. Because again, you can't make 100 movies, now you have to have a plan to be able to use all these different assets. One really interesting story that I'll tell you that I think is, a, is, 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 is really inspirational and really cool, and that makes this whole thing real, is there was a student that, uh, that approached me with a short film idea. They were shooting a, getting ready to shoot a thesis film uh, to graduate film school. And they needed to raise $12,000 to shoot their short film. And he said, Houston, will you look at my business plan? And uh, I, I looked at his business plan, and his business plan was give me $12,000 and I'll make my short film. I'm gonna put it into festivals and as I win the festivals, I'll give you the prize money until your $12,000 is paid back. That was the plan. When I read that, I, 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 I applaud this guy for coming up with that, but I'm thinking again, like, the, like a businessman, no way I invest in that $12,000 into that, into that business plan. Why? It's because one, it's hard to get into festivals and it's even harder to win. I mean, that's the thing that any 
filmmaker understands, it's very super, super competitive. So me as an investor, I'm gonna look at that and say, that's risky. Like it's very, very low uh, rate of return. I'm probably gonna lose this money. And so I encouraged this student. I said, yeah, I, I don't think this is gonna go. Uh, you can try it. I don't think it'll work. I think you would be better off uh, potentially just asking people for a, like a GoFundMe donation. Um, he didn't want to do that. He wanted to actually try to get the investment. And so he identified an investor in Florida that he wanted to uh, approach with this opportunity. And this guy owned seven car lots. And his mom was connected to this guy on, on Facebook. And they were friends. And so he had just had it. Again, this is not an entertainment guy. It's a guy that sells cars. And so, so he, for three days, we sort of repackaged his pitch. So what we did was we went and we did a transmedia plan for that. And we, we went from a product-centric view of the, um, of, the, of the opportunity and made an IP-centric view of the opportunity. So IP being the larger intellectual property, right? And so we quickly, what this, what this kid had in spades was a really cool idea. He had a cool creative idea. And so we, for two days, we workshopped the idea and we, we, developed, uh, we developed a podcast, we developed a self-published novel, we developed um, a concept for a digital comic book, we developed a, um, a concept for a, uh, a musical EP. He knew some people at the music school that, were, that, would, that he contacted. They said they would create six songs that extended the story. They would do it on spec for him and they, they had a rev share that they were gonna do. Um, we, we, we sketched out um, the self-published novel. We sketched out uh, a feature film and a TV series. And we figured, and they all told different stories within the same story world. They were all connected together in this really interesting way and they all worked for one whole big puzzle. And so then the pitch became, I want you to invest, in, not into my short film, I want you to invest into the IP itself, right? So now you're a financial, you the investor are a financial partner into my, in my intellectual par- property. So what we're gonna do first is we're going to take the $12,000 and we're gonna put it into the short film because that's what I need to shoot the short film for. But listen, we know that short films probably won't make money. I'll put it in the festivals, and if I win, then I'll give you, some, give you the prize money. But the point of the short film no longer is driving revenue. Primarily, it's building audience. We're gonna put it in the festivals, start to build an audience with this cool idea. We're gonna release the podcast that I can produce myself for free, that's gonna build audience, that's gonna get eyeballs. Uh, we're gonna release the music which uh, is gonna get a whole different demographic of people and also build audience and, get, and, and build excitement. And if the music makes any money, you participate in the profit of that. I'm gonna write, write my own novel, self-publish it. That's gonna be on Amazon. That's gonna build audience. But if that, like through the book sales, if that starts making money, you participate, the investor participate in the profit of that. The digital comic book's gonna be up on the website. His, his brother was an illustrator uh, and said he would uh, uh, spec out one issue for him. Uh, if when that's a 99 cent download, investor will participate in the profit of that. That's also going to build audience. The plan is then to do that for two years. 
We're going to work the podcast, work the novel, work the music. There was, there was a release window of like when everything was going to be released. And we're going to work that for two years while the kid writes the feature film script. Right? As it's being developed, as it's being written, uh, the, all this stuff is going to be there. With, after that two years, if, if everything works out, the, the, the plan will be we'll have enough audience and pre-awareness to then start approaching production companies to option the script. But we're not just going to be a, a, a somebody, a, an IP that no one's ever heard of. We can point to our brand awareness and we can point to our audience and we can point to our community of fans. And so now we have at least have a puncher's chance to be able to sell the feature. If the feature sells, you, the investor, participate in the profit of that. And then, you know, listen, this is pie in the sky, long-term thinking. If the film does well, and we sort of have this like cult success on our hands, this indie success, maybe then we can sell it as a TV series. And if, and if that goes, you participate in the profit of that. And so now it's a, it's a 10-year plan rather than just a short fill plan. But you can see immediately how that just became a whole other thing. Like the, from an investment perspective, the investor looks at that completely differently. It seems, it seems like a bigger opportunity. It seems, it seems reasonable. And, uh, and this guy sells car lots. So we went, oh, he has cars, uh, seven car lots, he sells cars. We went and put the car lot in every story. Because what does the car lot guy care about most is selling cars, he cares about his car lots. So we made it a location in the story world and we made sure it was in every story. So we, he works that up into a pitch deck the whole plan is there. You know, he works. The, he does the, biz, the business. Uh, the business plan runs the numbers for all the stuff, and then goes off to Florida a couple weeks later. Gives me a call after he gets there. He's been there a couple days. Gives me a call and says, "Houston, I got my investment." I said, "You got your twelve thousand dollar investment? That's amazing." He said, "No, I didn't get a twelve thousand dollar investment. I got a two hundred and thirty thousand dollar investment." I said, "Really? Like?" how did you get a $230,000 investment? He said, well, I just sat down with this guy and I laid all this stuff out. And this guy looked at me and said, you know what, this makes business sense. And he says, I don't know anything about entertainment, but this makes business sense. And then the guy said, he said, do you know how much money I waste in marketing uh, across my car lots every year? And, and he said, I, he, said he, he wastes about 40% of his marketing budget, just on, on billboards no one ever sees, commercials no one ever watches. And he said, because this makes business sense, and because you have the car lot in here, uh, I can take 10% of my marketing budget across all seven of my lots, and I'll just invest it into the IP. Because if it doesn't work, I was gonna waste the money anyway, but if it does work, all of a sudden, the business model seems interesting enough to where this could be a good long-term investment for me. And all of a sudden, this could be huge for me and my brand. And the fact that the car lot's in there, may, it will probably do, it'll, it'll market my car lots better than, um, than my regular crappy uh, used car lot commercials will. He said, people will come to my car lot just because it's like a movie location uh, and, and it taps into all of the thing. And so all of a sudden, repositioning that, that project from a product-centric point of view to an IP point of view, IP perspective, that one, had a plan of how do you build pre-awareness that shifts the risk, but then also how do you increase scalability on the back end that increases your market opportunity, and how do you make it make business sense 
for the person across the table. Now, if, if, if that didn't work and he was going to an orthodontist uh, who, who has money and the next pitch, he will probably have to change that, take the car light out, do something else, right? And so, uh, so you have to be, you, you're probably not just gonna have one pitch for, for your IP. You, you need to design it for the person to whom you're pitching. Make it a tailored suit rather than the suit they have to fit in. And so all of a sudden, this, this from an independent perspective, this makes an independent private equity venture a hundred times more interesting and more valuable than just the person that has the one script or the one movie idea or the one short film or whatever it is. So again, do you have to figure it out a little bit more? Of course, right? But, but I think the problem is there's a lot of people that wanna achieve what other people have without doing the same amount of work that other people do. And so, yeah, like we just, we're, we're, we live in a time that independent creators have to do more work than ever before to be able to survive in a commoditized, oversaturated entertainment market. But at the same time, we're blessed to live in a time where we have so many tools that my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents never had, right? So it, so, so it swings both ways. You just have to get out of that, that same mindset, see the opportunities. All of a sudden, if you're able to implement those opportunities, your investment pitch, it's a completely different conversation. So for some of us screenwriters out there or people who love to write stories, is that like a market for people who can write transmedia projects kind of on spec the same way I'd write like a script for a TV show that I love? If I like identify a story world out there in the market that might not be like utilized as much as I think it could, would I be able to write a spec transmedia project for that and, and get a meeting to pitch that to those types of people? Does that happen in the industry very often? So developing transmedia projects on spec absolutely could happen. And if you have a vision of how a story can extend across multiple platforms uh, as a way to build more revenue, to engage audiences, to build brand equity, to be able to uh, build, build, you know, revive an, uh, uh, a uh, public domain story world, or maybe it's an original story world, and you can do it on spec, whatever it is, uh, uh, you can absolutely do that on spec. Now, how you pitch it is going to be depending on depending on who you pitch to. And so if you're pitching that to a movie producer or a movie studio, then then you probably don't want to go in with all your transmedia guns blazing right at first. You want to if they're in the business of film, you want to be able to push your film, the film idea within the plan front and center. And you want to have that be the centerpiece, tentpole, driving platform of the whole project. And then everything else are are ancillary opportunities to scale the project bigger in the long term, to be able to front load pre-awareness before the film comes out, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if you if you walk into a book publisher to pitch to a book pu- book publisher, you're going to have the novel front and center. If you walk into a television network, you're going to have the TV show front and center. Uh, if you walk into a private equity opportunity, then you can kind of position the, the the whole brand front and center and how everything interplays. So it really just depends on how you pitch it to whom you're talking to. But I think as far as specking things out. Uh, and and go ahead and understanding and developing how the story interplays across multiple platforms. I'm very bullish on. I'm a big fan of doing that 
because I think that then shows what the opportunity is to the person to whom you're pitching. And so if you just walk in just with the film pitch and then after the film pitch you say, oh yeah, well, and we could do this and this and this and just kind of spit it off the top of your head, that doesn't have the substance of you being able to say, eh, here's the film, but then here's the strategy that I wanna use to be able to generate audience while the film is in development and pre-production, production, and post-production. I wanna be able to work this thing for two years across these four platforms that are gonna get the demographic that we need, and here's how I'm gonna do it, and here are the story ideas that are gonna work on that platform, natively designed for those platforms. So you have to understand the type of stories that work on Instagram as opposed to the type of stories that work on Snapchat, as opposed to the type of stories that work as a short story on Wattpad, whatever it is. Uh, here's the story ideas that are natively designed for those platforms. Then here after we release the film, I want to be able to release these three things to be able to extend the, the experience of the people that go to the theater. And then two years down the road, if everything goes well, I want to be able to do this, 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 this. And here Here's how it all plays together. And then what they'll see is there was a secret that we posed in the in the Wattpad short story that was released a year before the film ever came out that we're now going to pull on and be able to develop this other thing that we're going to then, you know, release, you know, three years down the road, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden now you, you, you sh one, show your strategic uh, expertise uh, and it seems more substantial. You know, when it comes to investment and pitching, uh, investors, they bet on the horse and they bet on the jockey. And the horse is the product. You, know, you gotta have a good script, gotta have a good product, right? But they also bet on the jockey. The problem bet on the jockey, especially if you're an independent filmmaker or a filmmaker who's early in their career and you don't have the credits that other jockeys have, you have to be able to display an expertise or a value that makes, makes that investor say, this person has something special. And, and if, 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 if this is your first film, your second film, and you don't have the, the big IMDB page, if you can show the transmedia strategy of how to grow the brand, then all of a sudden, in my experience, as long as it's good, right? I mean, the, the creative is the variable, right? I mean, sometimes people don't get investments not because it's a bad model, just because it's a bad story or they haven't executed the story. So let's just presume that it's a good idea, a good story, the whole thing then you're able to show your expertise, your value. This person has something special that, that they have this thing planned out. And now this jockey may not be like the other jockeys, but it's something that I can bet on. And so, uh, so but how you position that is, is all dependent to whom you're pitching. When it goes back to that empathetic pitching uh, topic, of to whom you're pitching, what do they care about, and how do I tailor the pitch to them? Which means you may have seven different or 10 different or 17 different versions of your pitch so that you can go around town and, and pitch different people, but all of a sudden it's, it's really focused and targeted to them. But I think the fundamental question is, do I go ahead and spec this thing out? I think the more you spec it out, the better. The more you spec it out, the better. If you can actually execute some of the some of the front end pre awareness transmedia ideas, and actually point to your audience, that's the better. That that's the best. If you can't do that, then at least have the plan of this is what I'm going to do as soon as we do this deal. As soon as we get solidified, this is my strategy. And the more you have 
I think it's always the better. If you can have a script written, that's better than having a treatment written, I think. If you, uh, if, if you can't have uh, the treatment written, uh, have something, have a good one sheet. If you can't have a one sheet, have something. If you just walk in with an idea, ideas are a dime a dozen. We've heard it a thousand times, the old cliche, right? Like, like people don't invest into ideas. Anybody, we can all sit in a room and come up with, a hundred thousand amazing ideas that would be great transmedia projects, great movies, great TV shows, but that's not what people invest into. They invest into ideas that have execution uh, attached to it. Will the person execute on the idea and how can you show people that you can execute on the idea and the more substance you have, the more strategy you have, the more vision you have, the more enthusiasm you have, that all lends itself to the horse is good and the jockey's good. You've mentioned Wattpad several times. Now that's a blogging platform? Yeah, so so Wattpad is a social media uh say maybe it's not a social I'm not sure how that it's it's Wattpad is a platform where people write short stories and share short stories. One of the hottest places that is being optioned for film right now is Wattpad. Uh, agents, uh, producers Studios, networks, they're every single month combing through Wattpad, finding short stories, one, that have good ideas, but they're seeing where the audiences go. Because uh, the cool thing about digital platforms is you can see all the analytics. You can see how many likes they have, how many followers they have, all that stuff. And so they see, oh, this is a cool story, and this is the audiences are gravitating to this. All of a sudden, they use the data and the analytics to option that story to then develop into a feature. And so, uh, so right now, the, I think the two hottest uh, platforms to, and mediums to understand, to be able to get optioned, isn't the spec script, it's Wattpad and podcasts. There were, there were eight podcasts optioned for TV last fall, eight. That, but I mean, we, uh, one of my favorites I thought was amazing was Dirty John. Dirty John was a tremendous uh, uh, podcast based off an LA Times article developed into a podcast based on the success of the podcast, got, uh, it was, uh, Connie Britton was in a TV show, I think it was a &E, I think, picked it up, right? And so uh, ABC uh, picked up several podcasts. All, the networks are, are mining podcast and mining Wattpad for, uh, for material because it shows, it shows pre-awareness in the marketplace, right? And for independent producers, it's very competitive to jump, to, to jump around town trying to option the books, like novels, trying to option novels before other people, super competitive and super expensive. The Hunger Games, the novels of the Hunger Games were actually optioned three months before they ever hit the market. And so the option game with novels is crazy. And most of us, like mere mortals, don't have $30,000 or $50,000 laying around that I can slap down on an option on a book. And so, and so now, independent producers are looking at other places where stories come from. And that's where one of the public domain is, is, is important. But now Wattpad uh, and podcast are really ripe for, uh, for people to swoop in and option some things in a less competitive market. Now the problem with that is now the networks are starting to like get hip on Wattpad and podcast. And so now there's more competition in those markets but there's always going to be, you know, whether it's Instagram, whether it's Snapchat, whatever it is, these platforms, have, they can be used to seed IP. So if I know that as an independent creator, if I know that there, that there are networks and studios and agents and producers trolling, trolling in a good way, 
uh, Wattpad and podcast for content. Then all of a sudden, I'm gonna say, why don't I have a short story on Wattpad and a podcast on the, on the, on the iTunes store and have my feature film ready to go? Because now what I've done is I've increased my odds of getting exposure and being discovered and I can point to the pre-awareness of the audience that I aggregate on those platforms. And so I can point to the number of people that have read my, uh, that have read my short story, point to the number of people that subscribe to my, uh, to my podcast. And if that's enough to get me the meeting, I can say, and the feature film script is already ready. And so it's just maximizing the opportunity. I, honestly, I don't understand why everybody doesn't do that. The reason people don't do that is they don't want to take the time to learn how to do the podcast. They don't want to take the time to like learn how to do the short story and Wattpad and it seems, you know, I don't like social media. Everybody just argues about Donald Trump and all that. Like that's true. Don't use it to argue politics. Use it to seed and leverage your IP to be able to get to the point where you can do the things that you want to do. And these are opportunities that have never been available in human history. And people are using them for dumb stuff. Like, let's use them as a, as a tool for independent creators in this amazing way to be able to flip it to where now you can really live your dream of being on set, shooting your movie, uh, you know, optioning your script, whatever it is, in order to get there there are opportunities that are just sitting on the table ready to go. And how does one know if something is in the public domain? There, there are websites that, uh, that collect all this stuff and that, that, um, that you, you know, if you Google like public domain uh, science fiction, public domain fantasy, there are websites that will catalog all the, the things that have already moved into the public domain. Uh, and then, so what I would suggest is, is, is go there first and then begin developing out of there first. Eventually, you just probably wanna double check with an attorney just to make sure, uh, but it's 70 years after the death of the author, typically things move into the, uh, into the public domain. But, uh, but double check with an attorney before you, you know, produce something, but, there, but to get, but, but there are certain, not services, but there are websites that catalog all that information that are great resources to tap into. I know you said that numerous people have reached out to you since our interview about a year and a half ago, yep. and I'd love to hear all of the emails, but one in particular that you were just talking about reading beforehand was about sort of the moral issue of transmedia, and I'm probably not saying it correctly, but can you, what sure. the email was about? Sure, this is the real common question that, that, I, that I get uh, from people is, is transmedia immoral? Uh, and and it, it's, it's kind of, you know, first time someone asked me that, I thought it was, it, I didn't really understand what they were saying. And like digging in with, with, with uh, these people that have those questions, it, it, it's sort of rooted in, is this just capitalistic exploitation of the audience? Is this manipulation of the audience? Are you taking advantage of people in, in a bad way? And, uh, you know, is this just the, is this just a big cash grab that you don't really care about the people, you just care about taking their money? And there's all these issues that, that people have with it. And my, you know, my typical answer is that, like anything, transmedia can be used in an, an immoral way, of course. Like it depends on who the creator is and it depends on what their intentions are and what they're trying to do. Are there people out there trying to just use it as a cash grab? Are they like just 
you know, capitalistic jerks that are just trying to take advantage of opportunities. And, and of course, just, just like regular film producers, they're, they're doing the same thing or television producers or like morality doesn't have anything to do with platforms. It's all about the intention of the creator and the intention of the business people that are trying to sort of propagate this idea and this model and whatever they're trying to do in the venture. So, uh, so is transmedia immoral per se? Of course not. You know, I mean, if my, my kitchen knife isn't immoral per se, if I use my kitchen knife to, to stab you, then all of a sudden I've committed an immoral thing uh, with, an, with a, you know, a morally neutral object, right? So, uh, so it all depends on, on the intention. Uh, so I, I'm, when it comes to like the capitalism aspect of it, like I'm very passionate that we were speaking about this before. I'm very passionate that that artists don't have to be starving artists. That artists don't have to choose between making money and 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 doing their art. And that's usually people feel like it's a binary choice. People feel like I can either sell out and uh, and make money or. I can pursue my art, which is somehow more pure, right? And and really, I think in tr- traditional entertainment, that has been the choice that people make, is I can either make studio movies or superhero crap, or I can do make the movies that I love. And and so you're either for, forced into these one of these two options. I think in a one, I, I, I'm not opposed to making money. I'm, I'm very, I'm very much a capitalist. I'm very much like I love the fact that we live in America that allows us to create an opportunity to be able to maximize our brand and maximize our opportunities in a way that allows me to feed my family and, ha- and and have this be my career. I think that's awesome. I what I want for every screenwriter out there, every filmmaker out there, every producer, every director is is I want them to be able to do their dream as their career. I don't want them to work at Burger King and make movies on the weekend. Like no offense against Burger King. I don't want them to have to like work at Starbucks or Hobby Lobby as they try to like have uh, filmmaking be their side hustle. Like if they're doing that, that's awesome. That's what you have to do. But eventually what, what my wish is for them is, is they get to a level where they can just do filmmaking full time. And in order to get there, you either need to be independently wealthy or you need to be able to understand how to generate revenue. This is, the, the entertainment is, is, is creating product that people will purchase, buy, you know, spend their money on. And if you don't make stuff that people want to spend money on, then uh, you're not gonna be in business very long. No one's gonna invest into your stuff or, or, or uh, no one's gonna come see it. There's, there's no revenue flowing, therefore you're, you can't make this your business. It's a very practical question. I don't think that's immoral to say, I want to be a career creator. I want, to be, I want filmmaking to be my career. In order to do that, you have to figure out how to make money. Now, Here's the cool thing about transmedia. This is why I think transmedia is the opposite of immoral, really, if you think about it in, that, in the terms of capitalism. If, 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 let's say a filmmaker wants to make a very non-commercial art house film that 
that you you know that this very specific niche that that breaks all the conventions. It's very like Terrence Malick, right? It's like Terrence Malick without Terrence Malick's brand. And so that's probably not going to get a wide distribution. It's probably not going to get picked up. But this is this is the thing that's in their heart that they want to make. So if that's all you have, if that's all you have, then you're going to have to make the choice. Do I make this movie and, and have to do it on a small budget, low budget, no budget, and do it on the weekends uh, because nobody's going to invest in it or it's not going to get options, it's not going to get picked up? Uh, I, can either, I can either make that movie or I can change it to, to then add the three-act structure and they can read a Blake Snyder book and they can add the Save the Cat stuff in it and make it commercial and then all of a sudden now I can sell it, I can get the investment, except I can get distribution for it, et cetera, et cetera. So both options I think are bad options. One option has you, uh, has you being a starving artist, which I think sucks. The other option has you selling your soul in order and, and, and not doing the thing that's in your heart just in order to be able to uh, you know, have this be your full-time gig. That's the binary option. Now in a transmedia model, that option, that binary choice isn't the choice anymore. Now you can say, you know what? I'm gonna do my weird Terrence Malick art house film and I'm gonna do it as is. Now, if you have that as part of, the bro- of a broader IP, now all you have to say is, if this thing isn't gonna make money, which it probably won't, what are the other things that I can do to surround this film with that will generate my revenue? So if I can point to now a, a, a novel or you know, a digital thing or uh, you know, a comic book series or a mobile game or whatever it is, that you can surround this thing with, and these other things can generate revenue. Now, this weird art house thing could almost be like a loss leader that fuels the the the, the revenue and the interest of these other things. And so, it it doesn't matter. The way the studios work is is they work on a resource allocation model, where if they release 14 movies in a year, they know that all 14 movies aren't gonna be solvent. They're all not gonna make money. They, they hope and pray out of the 14 movies they release a year that there's four tent poles that, that, that overperform to make up for the deficits of the movies that financially failed. And they know that moving into the year. Like every studio knows that everything they're they're going to do isn't going to be a hit. They they know that most of the stuff is going to make is going to lose money. There's going to be a few things that make money. Those things uphold the tent. That's why they call them tent poles. So it's called a resource allocation model. If you take that same thinking and apply that to a transmedia project, and if you say I know my art house movie is not going to make money, that's totally fine. You still do that because that's what's in your heart. But now you just need something else to overperform and make enough money that it, that, it, that it compensates for the deficit created by the film. Because the film costs money to make, which means it's gonna technically that, that one element is gonna lose money. But as long as you make that up somewhere else, now it's a net net gain. And so, and so usually when I talk to, to, uh, to indie filmmakers that are very precious about their one thing uh, and they don't want to change it because they don't want to make the binary choice, 
uh, they're less precious about things in other platforms, right? Uh, like they're fine with having a New York Times bestselling novel and doing a very commercialized novel. They just don't want to change their movie, right? They're fine with having a very successful mobile game like Clash of Clans, but they just don't want to change their movie. And so, and so all of a sudden for the people that don't want to make the binary choice, the transmedia model is the perfect thing for them because now they can, they can figure out how to maintain the artistic integrity of the one thing that they love while figuring out how to drive revenue from other places. And with that, you can still be able to better position that for investment. I had a one filmmaker that was telling me, uh, he, he, said, he said, I make movies for me. I don't care if anyone likes them and I don't care if they make money. I make, them, I make it for me. And, and I, I, said, I said, that's great. I said, you know, what do you wanna do? I said, I wanna be a career film, filmmaker. My question is, how are you gonna finance it? Can you imagine going to an investor interview and saying, I want you to give me a million dollars to make my movie, but I don't care if anyone likes it and I don't care if it makes money? It's not gonna happen. It's just not gonna happen. And so, but if you walk into the investor and say, listen, my movie is gonna be weird, it's gonna be art house, it's gonna be niche. I don't care if this makes money, but that's okay because I'm making money here, 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 and it's all gonna work together, right? But my movie, the artistic integrity of my movie is gonna be maintained. That investor, if, they're all, if all the numbers line up and the bottom line lines up, now you at least have a puncher's chance where before you had zero chance. So, so all of a sudden, like you don't have to make that choice, which I think changes that calculation a little bit about whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. Is this just commercialism gone awry or is it actually a tool for independent artists to be able to do the things that they love for the rest of their life? And, and that's that, I think, shifting that thinking is, is, is a big shift. Now, the other thing about this is, that I think is really important, is, is something that I call soapbox. The so, a soapbox is basically a, a, the theme, the message of your, of your film. Like, where, like how, do you, how does your film, how does your script tap into like, the passion that's in your heart? What are you trying to say? What, what is your commentary on the world? How do you make your, your project feel not just cool, but important because it's tapped into to, to something? I think the greatest art from, uh, throughout history comes from the passion and perspective and the heart of the creator. I think, you know, things like something like Get Out what that came from like the heart of the creator and it had an importance attached to it, not just a cool factor. It wasn't just a cool high concept. It, was, it felt like an important film because it was. And I think when you, when you, when you read Hemingway or you listen to an Aretha Franklin song, there, there's something about the passion and the authenticity about what these creators want to say with their art that makes this art sustainable and makes the art resonate better with the audience. I think Tarantino, every, every, every film uh, that, that, he, that, that he makes is, is just dripping with his passion. And you can see it. And, and, and it comes across in a very soulish, intangible way, but the audience receives it differently. So if in today's world, it's important to do things and to create things, not just because they have a, you have a cool high concept idea, it's because you're actually passionate about an issue, passionate about something, a perspective, something of importance that gives your story a moral depth to it that, that is interesting. Now that could be in something like, you know, something like Get Out or something like Roma, 
Or on the other end, I think, you know, I think George Lucas was saying something very important and specific when he created Star Wars. He, he, he was supposed to uh, direct Apocalypse Now. He, uh, before Francis Ford Coppola because he was so passionate about the Vietnam War. Uh, the movie got delayed, so he went and did Star Wars instead, which I think ultimately was better for Apocalypse Now. But, the, uh, but he took all, all the passion he had for imperialism and clo- colonialism and overreaching government, and that same passion that made him a hippie back in the 60s as a college student, he poured that into like a larger IP. Personally, I don't think that Black, Pan- Black Panther technically is one of the best pictures as far as like the Oscar conversation. I don't think the, the technical aspect of Black Panther is best picture worthy. But Black Panther had the technical, had, you know, I think solid superhero technicality. I think it had great costumes, the whole thing. But Black Panther was rooted and tapped into an importance that that elevates the film above just being a normal superhero movie. It's important to people, it's important to culture, and it connects to people's hearts because of what it stands for. And so if, 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 if creators understand what they wanna say with their art, not just how to make money, but what they wanna say, what are you trying to say as a person, as a human being? What are you trying to convey? Like, like, we, like the world's on fire in, in a thousand different ways, and filmmakers have an, have an opportunity and to 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 have a platform to actually say something about the world. And in today's environment, that's actually wanted and desired by the audience. Is it's not in like the Gen Z and the millennial generation? They're not like like my generation or the, my parents' generation where we just wanted popcorn stuff, they, they want something real and authentic and important. And so I say all this to say, as a filmmaker, if you have something important to say, and if you put it in your movie and you release your movie, some people will hear your message and they'll be the people that watch your movie. But in today's oversaturated, commoditized, highly competitive uh, entertainment landscape. Not everybody watches movies, right? What about the, the, the people that don't go to the movies uh, and all they do is listen to music uh, or, or play video games? Or what about the people that don't watch TV or, or movies at all and just uh, they play board games all the time? There's so much stuff that people, what about the, the kids that all they do is they have their nose in a book and they just read all the time? Do they not need to hear your message as well? If it's so important to you, if your message is actually important, if you have commentary on, on immigration issues or racial issues or political issues, or not just any political hot button issues, but if you're passionate about anything, then, then doesn't the person that's in the, in the basement playing board games, don't they need to hear that as well? The kid that just sits on their phone and plays mobile games, don't they need to hear what you have to say as well? Of course they do. If your message is actually important, of course they do. All of a sudden, in order to reach all those people, you have to diversify the way, that, like you have to diversify your IP. Because once you start looking at transmedia less as a cash grab and more as an opportunity to deploy your message and your passion and your heart to everybody doing everything around the world, all of a sudden it makes a lot more sense, right? Now your, your IP is becoming all things to all people. 
right? And being able to operate and connect that message with everybody's heart, which then leads them back into a community of people, a community of other fans that all share that 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 same you know that same message, and that's what makes the uh, that's what makes IP important, right? So so talking about this question of immorality, I think again goes back to the motivations, but if your motivation is I want to. I want to change the world in a positive way. I want to impact the world with this very important thing that's coming out of my soul. Then transmedia is the perfect thing for you because now you're getting into everybody that needs it, and not everybody does. Not everybody does it. No one does everything, but everybody does something. If that makes sense. So there, nobody like plays video games, watches movies, listens to music. Like nobody does everything because there's so much stuff, right? But everybody does something. And in order to reach everybody in this world, now we have to diversify the way we deploy the message or deploy the passion. And that's where transmedia becomes beneficial. Let's suppose we're gonna do a workshop right here today, uh, building a story world. Sure. How would we begin it? So when we're talking about story worlds, we, we need to separate stories from story worlds. So story worlds are places and stories are things that happen in those places. And so a lot of what, what I found a lot of people they they don't understand what a story world is. Uh, I, I, you know some people say, well, my my story world is my you know character's coming of age sexuality or whatever. That's not a story world. That's some like a character arc. A story world literally is a geographical place. It's 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 uh, it. You know, we we understand the story of of Lord of the Rings and Frodo and the Ring and the journey to destroy the Ring, but the uh, the the story world is Middle Earth. So Neo's story is is in the Matrix is about his adventure with with Morpheus and taking down the Matrix and against the machines and Agent Smith and all that stuff. But the story world of the Matrix is a futuristic Earth that's been taken over by machines. Uh, and they use people as batteries in a VR environment. So story worlds are places, and that's what you have to understand. But it's not just any place. It's any place that is interesting. It has to be interesting by itself. And so most people, when they, when they develop content, they develop uh, scripts or, or TV for, uh, or features or books, the most interesting things they have are their characters and their plots, and then they relegate story world to setting. As a setting is just simply where my story takes place. But just because you have a setting doesn't necessarily mean you have a story world. A story world is a setting that has independent interest. So it's interest that's independent of any character, independent of any story. So my rule of thumb is, can you take your main character, your protagonist, your hero, can you take them out of the story world and have your story world still be interesting? Right? Uh, can you take the story out of the story world and still have it be interesting? So I can right now take Luke Skywalker out of Star Wars and the Star Wars Galaxy, still interesting. I can take Frodo out of Middle Earth, Middle Earth, Middle Earth is still interesting. I can take Baymax out of uh, Big Hero 6 and San Francisco, still interesting, right? Uh, but can you take Rocky out of Rocky? It's a different calculation. Right? Because you think, well, they're doing that with Creed. Well, Creed still has Rocky. But I mean, it's, it's, if we take Rocky out of Rocky, then we have Philadelphia, which is the setting, but there's nothing independently interesting about Philadelphia. No offense to Philadelphia. Right? So, but, but the interest of Rocky comes through Rocky and Creed and the characters, but the place itself isn't interesting. I mean, you look at something like Gotham, 
with Batman, you can take Batman out of Gotham and you can have a whole TV show about it, right? Because the place in and of itself is super interesting. And when you have an interesting setting that creates your story world, you now, you now have story potential. And so you will never, any creator, any, any writer, any director, any filmmaker, they will never truly understand the revenue potential of their brand or their IP unless they actually understand their story world. Story worlds create story potential. Story potential creates revenue potential. And, and, so, and then revenue potential makes buyers happy. They make you know, the investors happy. They make us happy, the, the, the creators happy. They make everybody happy. And so, but if you don't understand your story world, uh, you won't understand that story potential. So, so, in, so story worlds are a really important tool to be able to maximize the story potential in your IP. So you just have to understand, first off, what a story world is, like what it is at all. Then how do we, how do we create it? So, so a couple, a couple easy ways that, that uh, some easy tips that people can start thinking about as they create story world is they need to be thinking first about their theme, about what they wanna say and about what their perspective is. It goes back to that passion. Like what, what's, the, what, what, what's the commentary that they're trying to put into any individual story? And then, once you understand that, then the starting point for a great story world is a place that needs your soapbox or your theme. So for example, if, you, if, you, if your theme is all about income inequality, about how the evils of income inequality, then, and you wanna show people that, and, and, and tell people that equality of income is actually like the ideal for society. Let's see, that's what you wanna say. The starting place or the starting point for your story world is a place that needs that message, which means that's a place where income inequality is gonna be a tremendous problem. That's your starting point. It isn't just like, oh, I'll just set it in Philadelphia or I'll set it in a fantasy world with wizards. That's not the starting point. The starting point is, what am I trying to say with my movie? What am I trying to say with my book? What am I trying to say with my video game? And what's a world that needs to hear that message? And so if, you, if, if under the income inequality uh, um, example, maybe your story world is a sci-fi story world like Elysium, where the rich folks live in the sky and the poor folks live on, you know, on the ground. Or maybe it's a real world story world like India, where billionaires and slum dogs live like two blocks apart, right? So it can, it can be, or anywhere on that spectrum, right? Or Los Angeles. Yeah. Or Los Angeles, exactly. And so, but that's the starting point is what's a world that needs my, uh, what's a world that needs my soapbox or needs my theme? One of my favorite uh, uh, story worlds just in the past couple of years is a show called Godless that was on, um, uh, Steven Soderbergh produced it for Netflix. Great high concept. Which was um, which was a town, where, a old west town, where all the men in the town died in a mining accident, and so the only people that are left in the town are the women, and the women sort of run the you know run run the town, protect the town, do everything in the town, and so uh, so you, you, if you listen to the creators talk, the thing that they wanted to say with the show, it's a great show. The thing they wanted to say is that women can be every bit as strong as men. Women can do just as cool, awesome, interesting, cool things as men. That's what they wanted to show. They want to give a vehicle for this message. And so a world that, ne that, that needs to hear that could be 
uh, a medieval world, it could be a sci-fi world, but they cho chose the Old West. So the Old West, uh, you know, is all about like the man's man on the horse and the women in the dress that raised the, raised the, the kids at home. And it was very patriarchal in the way society was set up. And everybody looked to the men to do the to do the cool, awesome things, and no one looked to the women to do those things. And so the starting place for that story world is a world that needs that message, which is the Old West, right? And so, and so that basically, once you understand your theme, that kind of puts guardrails on your, the ideation process of your story world to where now you just know you need a world that needs your theme, which will necessarily eliminate certain ideas. Right, uh, so so you don't if, if it's in a, income inequality, you don't want to have your story world be a place where income inequality isn't a problem. It'll eliminate those uh, those story world options, and then limit you to the ones that do. But ultimately, if you do that, the benefit of this is that it takes your soapbox and your theme, and it bakes it into the cake of the story world itself, so that every story that you ever explore within that story world will naturally intrinsically communicate your message. It will be in the DNA, like woven into the DNA of the, of the story world itself. We never, no matter where we go in Jurassic Park, they never have to tell us that it's a bad idea to have made dinosaurs. We just know it. And we know it because the, 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 the soapbox of, of Jurassic Park, which I think is don't play God, because when we try to play God, we screw it up. That is built into the idea itself. It's built into the storyboard itself, and it's always there, right? Which is which is which is really interesting. And so, uh, so the starting point with 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 story world is what do you want to say? What's your perspective? What's your commentary? And then how do we create a world that needs that? Then what you need to do is you need to layer in a, a, I think a high concept, which is which is just a commercially interesting idea something that is immediately interesting and that can grab people's attention. And um, I think a lot of people focus on high concept when it comes to story and not, and not a, people don't focus on how to create a high concept for the world itself because the world itself needs to be interesting and commercial and uh, it needs to grab people's attention just as much as the characters and, and the story. So, so a town that, uh, a town uh, where all the men died and it's completely run by women, that's a great high concept, right? So, so the interest isn't on a specific character or a specific storyline. The interest is on the town itself. In, with Lost, the, the high concept is, a, as, is, a, is, a, is a, an island that travels through time and all this weird stuff happens. We can take any of those individual characters out of that island. That island is still interesting because that island has a high concept. Uh, the Skull Island with the King, in the King Kong franchise, there's something about Skull Island that creates giant animals. Uh, so I can take King Kong out of Skull Island and there's still interesting things there. There's, the high concept is attached to the world. And so, and so figuring out irony of what's, what's something that surprises you about this world, something that is, is interesting. Like, uh, I think um, Zootopia is a great example in, in the animated sense where this is a world where uh, where um, animals live as civilized humans, right? And there's a th that's irony, and that and the that's irony attached to the world itself. Then they were able to take an ironic world and create an ironic story or a high concept story inside the the high concept world. Where now they had a little tiny bunny that wanted to be a police officer, and all the other police officers were like the giant rhinos and everything. So they had a high concept character, high concept plot, but 
the world itself was independently high concept, right? And that's what makes the world interesting, and that's what creates the story potential over time. So, so you have to think about, so a lot of us, a lot of filmmakers will naturally understand a log line. What's a log line for your story? And that's just a really one sentence way to be able to encapsulate your plot and in a way that's interesting and makes people want to read your script. I'm very bullish on creating a log line for your story world in addition to your individual stories. And so a log line, a story world log line goes something like this. A story world is a place where ironic things happen. That's a template I always use for a story world. And if you can, if you can just use that template and say the story world is a place where ironic things happen, then you will always have something interesting. So for example, uh, Neverland is the story world. Neverland is a faraway fantasy land where people don't age and live as kids forever, right? So the story world is a place. What kind of, is, is, what kind of place is it? Is it a city? Is it a country? Is it a galaxy? No, it's a faraway fantasy land. And where's the irony? What's the surprising part of it? What's the interesting part of it? It's a place where you don't age and remain as a kid forever, right? So if, if, you, go, if you go through your story world and you say, can I make a story world logline out of it that's independently interesting? And by adding in irony and a high concept to the world itself, now you have some commerciality and some interest and something that is uh, that that by itself can grab people's attention. Craig, what about Gilead um, in The Handmaid's Tale or or Sharp Objects? I don't know if you watched that. Sure. Sharp Objects. Yeah. Uh, what would about that story world can can you do? So so obviously with with a, with with a hand a Handmaid's Tale, I think the irony is the the high concept of that of that world. One that's it that's when we're talking about soapbox and what's your message and how to create a story world that, that needs that message, uh, when it talks about the reproductive rights of women, I think that's very clearly the commentary of the patriarchy controlling the reproductive rights, rights of women. Uh, that's a world that needs to hear that message, obviously. Uh, and the high, then, then they layer in the high concept, which is you know not, not every woman can uh, uh, give birth, and there's some women that can give birth that are now controlled and forced to give birth as like these four surrogates. That's the big commercial idea, but it's the big commercial idea rooted in an important message, right? Which, which is kind of interesting how those flow together, which gets you to the point of where your story world is now not just cool, the coolness comes through the high concept, but it's also important, and the importance comes through the soapbox. They work together for the whole thing. So I, th I think The Handmaid's Tale is a tremendous story world, tremendously interesting story world, outside of any individual character, outside of any individual story, someone can tell me the concept of the story world itself, and I'm in. That's interesting, that's cool. And now I wanna go check it out. I can see the, where the story potential is, et cetera, et cetera. I think with, with Wind Gap and Sharp Objects, I think Wind Gap is a small, wind, uh, you know, small Midwest town where everybody has a secret, Nothing is as it seems. I mean, just the way they built that world is really interesting. Even with like the teenagers that roller skate around town, that one little addition, they're not riding bikes, they're roller skating, which added this really interesting element to it, right? And so it, just the, the way they crafted that world, it wasn't just like any other normal small town. It was a small town with a dark underbelly that was very difficult for anybody to to tap into. It had this like weird veneer, but it was it was just a really interesting world. I think with with Stranger Things, right? Hawkins is a small Indiana town that is a portal to an other mirror dark mirror dimension. 
right? One sentence, you understand the high concept, the commerciality of that world. Right? I can take Mike and the gang and the Demigorgon and everybody out of, out of Stranger Things, and Hawkins is still interesting because the high concept is attached to the world itself. The problem is a lot of people design films and TV and, and novels and things like that with the high concept attached to the character, which means if you pull the character out, now the place is no longer interesting, which means you've tied your IP to that specific character which means you're gonna limit your story potential and your story options across platform uh, because the high concepts with him. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, for example. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? The high, the high concept there is the fish out of water concept of you know, a, a West Philly street hustler who's removed from West Philly and, and now lives in Bel-Air, right? That's the high concept. But if I take w Will out of the Fresh Prince, Bel-Air is no longer interesting. It's interesting because he's there because the high concept lives with him, right? Same thing with Beverly Hills Cop, right? I mean, this is the same thing. And Beverly Hillbillies, the whole thing, right? It's almost like a shared story world of people that aren't supposed to be there that are there, right? But if you, if you take out those characters, now we can't follow. One of my favorite uh, uh, story worlds is The Leftovers. Uh, it's a HBO show, three seasons, tremendous story world, where 2% of the world's population disappears instantly, and nobody knows where they went. And uh, the so you can follow with, with that, with that uh, high concept, you can follow any character in that world. And the world is still interesting because this is, this is a world where people can just disappear and you don't know why, right? So we buy in and we're interested because of the world. That's where the interest comes. And then if you can tell me a, if you can tell me a commercial story inside a commercial world, all of a sudden, now you're hitting on all levels, right? Because ultimately, you have to have a great story inside a high-concept world, else your product isn't good. Like one of the, um, if you remember the, the movie Jupiter Ascending with uh, Channing Tatum, Myla Kunis, it was the, uh, the Wachowskis, uh, that you know, after their masterpiece of The Matrix, uh, they went and created Jupiter Ascending, which I thought was a tremendous story world, but a really, really bad story. And so when you have a great world and a bad story, everything falls apart because your product just simply isn't good. And uh, the same with Tomorrowland with George Clooney. Tomorrowland's awesome, but the movie was bad, so, uh, so that sort of killed the whole thing. But if you can tell a great story inside a great world, this is when you have IP potential forever because your product is great and the story world is independently interesting, which is gonna create more, uh, more opportunities for you moving forward. What about the original Blade Runner? I, I think the whole world of Blade, of Blade Runner is really interesting. I think the world itself, I think, is high concept. So, you know, with the replicants and, and you know, and, and, you know, are people sort of these robots? Aren't they robots? Or like, you know, like that whole, the, the world is interesting. And especially even this, in, the, in the cinematography, the, the, the color, especially the new film, Blade Runner 2049. Like you just see like the way they colorize it. And, and, and it's sort of this like steampunk dystopian future. Uh, the world, I think, like without, uh, you take Harrison Ford out, still cool. Like it's it just still really interesting. Like Dune is another great one. Like you take, like, like that's a great story world. And so, so, so for fans, like I, I, you can take the Starks, the Starks out of Game of Thrones. I think Game of Thrones is still interesting, right? Like the, the high concept is with, with the place. Now I think you can even take you can take Wally out of Wally, and the world is still interesting, 
right? And so, so this is just an interesting tactic to judge, does the world have viability in and of itself, right? So you wanna have a soapbox that sort of, that sort of spurs the initial creation, then you wanna layer in the high concept, which builds the interest. Mortal Engines, uh, which Peter, the new Peter Jackson movie uh, that's coming out based on the books, I think is a really interesting high concept where, where this is a dystopian future where cities roll around on wheels, like tank wheels. So London rolls around and uh, it, it, like cities move. And I saw the teaser, I've never read the books, I saw the teaser and I said, huh, that's weird. I don't know why cities roll around on wheels in this weird dystopian future, but they do. And now I'm interested because I buy into the story world itself. One thing I think is really interesting that, that can help filmmakers is really pay attention to what's going on in video games. So the video game industry has made more money last year than movies, television, and music combined. Made $148 billion worldwide. Tremendous. So, so video games are doing something that nobody else is doing in any, any other industry. And if you pay attention to how the video games are promoting and getting people interested in their IP, you will see that video games, the, the thing they push most are story worlds. They will get you interested in the story world itself before anything else, before they sell you on mechanics, before they sell you on style, before they sell you on individual story. They, the high concept is always gonna be attached to the story world itself. Whether it's Fallout, whether it's Death Stranding, whether it, it, it's Fortnite where it's a battle, it's a, it's a crazy place where, where people drop out of a school bus into this like ever shrinking world that you can build forts. There's like, whatever it is, the way they sell and the way they get interest is because they're pushing for forward story worlds that are independently interesting beyond any one character or one story. And so I think filmmakers can look at that. Now, I don't think you have to have a big budget to have a good high concept story world. Like a high, again, a high concept story world isn't, doesn't have to be Star Wars, it doesn't have to be Harry Potter. Like, like a great high concept story world can exist in a $100,000 feature. It, like, it doesn't change the way you create an idea. One of my favorite uh, uh, stories about that is The Purge. Purge has a great high concept story world where the, pur the Purge is a dystopian America where all crime is legal for 12, 24 hours, whatever it is. And that's a story world logline. It's easily understandable, has irony in the line itself that gets interest into the world. But when you go watch the original Purge movie, it's all set in a house. They don't leave the house. And that's all, you know, you talk to filmmakers and, and, and they'll understand any movie that never leaves a house, <clears throat> excuse me, it's because of budget. It's a cost saving mechanism to, to only have one location. So they had a very small budget and they, uh, and so they couldn't go explore this tremendous world that they, that they, they had created. Right? So what I loved about that is, is really what they didn't do. What they didn't do is say, you know what? We have this really cool idea for a world, but we only have a very small budget to make a movie. So let's just, not, let's just set aside our high concept world and just make a movie about bad guys trying to kill people inside of a house and we'll save our cool story world concept for, for, for later when we have a big budget. What they did, they said, no, no, we'll, we'll create the world. And, and then we'll execute inside a house because that's all the budget we have.
And then if that's successful, then guess what they did in The Purge 2? They went outside the house and began exploring the world. So what happens is even if you have a really high concept uh, uh, story world idea, but a small budget, you can execute in that small budget. But then when you go to create the second story and the third story, you now have a growth plan and room to now grow organically inside that world. Because if they were to come out with the second movie and said, oh yeah, by the way, you can kill people for one day and they added the high concept the second time around, it would have been inauthentic. And so I'm, all, I'm very, very much a, 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 an advocate for designing, designing a 40,000 square foot blueprint for a house and this large story world that has independent interest, even if you can only build one room. Because when you build the first room, uh, what happens is if, if it works and everything goes well, you can go start to build the second room and the third room, and now you have a growth plan where your plumbing connects and your electrical connects and everything like works well as you grow out. And then maybe you get to a bigger room and a bigger room and a bigger room where you can explore more things. So, uh, and if it doesn't work, all you've done is burnt one creative idea and you should have a hundred more. And so, so I think a great story world uh, is independent of budget, uh, but at the same time communicates to the audience that this is interesting beyond just one story. And if an audience recognizes that, guess who also recognizes that? It's a buyer, it's an investor, right? So, so, so savvy buyers and savvy investors, can, they look at certain projects now and they say, that's a great world. Because listen, if you sell something to the studio as an independent writer, you sell something to the studio, you're gonna get rewritten anyway. They're gonna put somebody on it that, that is sort of a, you know, a tried and true studio writer that's gonna rewrite your stuff anyway. Right? So, so our studio, if they identify a script that has a great story world where they know they can get 10 or 12 or 100 stories over the next 10 years across seven different platforms, the investment they make into that script that has that world is, is a better investment than the one-off script that's just gonna be one really good movie but doesn't give a consideration to, any sto uh, to a story world aspect to it. Right, so so the the studios and the networks and the investors they're looking for market potential and story potential, but your story potential is directly linked to the revenue potential, which is also directly linked to the story world itself. And so and so you actually you actually position yourself for a for a a better chance of acquisition when you have a story world that shows off the revenue potential and the story potential across platform. Even listen, even if you don't come up with all the other stuff. Even if you don't say this is the video game and this is the th this is the the Instagram thing. If you just have a tremendous world and sell the world with the story, savvy buyers will recognize that potential for you. Sometimes they think, well this guy doesn't even know what he has, right? And 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 so what we see now in the industry, it's really interesting the past 2 years what's been going on is that studios have been acquiring story worlds without stories. Like like you think you have, just have to have the independence like the the feature film script of the the whole thing, not necessarily because there's a lot of short films that have been created that that don't have feature concepts that don't even have stories. All they do is have a story world concept that within a week have created caused bidding wars between the studios. The studios want the world. They they have they have overall deals with with writers and directors and producers already that they can drop in that world to write any script or develop whatever. What they need is the IP, and so 
tremendous story is, is, is there's an artist, the Scandinavian artist named St- Simon Stallenhog, and he creates, he, he's a painter, and he creates these paintings that are tremendous. They, 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 all, they all have like dystopian sci-fi story world elements. Amazon approaches, approaches him and says, we love the story world you're creating in your painting. We want to make a TV show set in this world. He sold a, he sold a TV show to Amazon without ever writing a pilot script, without even wanting to, right? Because he just created a, a tremendous world that Amazon said that has potential and we want to play in that sandbox, right? So making sure you have a commercial idea that is attached to the world itself, that is, that's a tremendous thing. Also thinking beyond individual characters, understanding character groups, uh, and, and, and so I think that that is a smart tactical way to develop story worlds. You're not thinking about Luke Skywalker, you're thinking about Jedi. You're not thinking about uh, Frodo, you're thinking about the Hobbits, right? You're not thinking about Iron Man, you're thinking about superheroes. And because the, the more characters you have, the more character groups you have, you increase story, you increase story potential and make your world a, 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 a better populated place with more interesting people. And I think, uh, adding in what I call special sauce to your story world is really important because a lot of like especially now it's very difficult to come up with a story world idea that hasn't been done that's completely unique and so what I encourage a lot of a lot of people to do is as they develop their individual story worlds if they find that their story world is similar to other people's story worlds that's okay what they need to do is just go in and add three or four new rules within the world, a special sauce that differentiates them from the convention. For example, uh, vampire story worlds have been done forever. Stephanie Meyer said, I'm still gonna do vampires, even though vampire story worlds have been done forever, but I'm gonna change two or three rules within my vampire story world. I'm going, instead of them being soulless, emotionless beasts, my vampires are gonna be super emo lovers. Instead of them melting in the sunlight, they're going to sparkle, right? Like the, the, she just she changed like two or three rules. All of a sudden, this story world in Twilight feels fresh and new, right? Like wizard stuff have been, has been done forever, but J.K. Rowling made these children wizards, and and gave it a little fresh twist that just made that story world feel fresh and new. And so so find a way just to to if you're doing zombies. Or if you're doing, uh, you know, something in space, you're doing something in like sword and sandal fantasy. Figure out the one or two or three rules that you can change within that world that just makes it feel different than Star Trek or Game of Thrones or you know uh, whatever else. And and if you add that special sauce, the little tweak to a world that has a commercially interesting idea that's rooted in the thematic, then all of a sudden you are light years ahead of, of any creator that just is trying to write like the one individual script. You, you, you are now on the way to creating a really robust and interesting story world. When writing a story, do you think it's important to write the story around a transmedia like structure or to extend it to transmedia after you have already developed the story? So when you're, deve- when you're developing stories, I think you have to you have to understand uh, that you have to execute this single story by itself, no matter what other transmedia idea that you have. I think uh, the tendency can be, 
I get so focused on all the all the stories that that uh, that I don't execute any individual individual story the right way, and uh, that that that's a mistake because you have to understand if 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 if, if your movie isn't good, if your script isn't good, nothing works. If if your if your TV pilot isn't good, nothing works. Now. What I would say is I'm a fan of, of developing the transmedia plan first and, and, underst- and understanding how all the stories interplay and understanding your story world and understanding where the opportunities are. And then once you have that sort of structure and that architecture in play and you understand where, what, what part of the puzzle this individual story is, then, um, uh, then what you do is just then set that aside. You set all that aside, and then you just gotta dive in and make sure you write an awesome script and an awesome pilot and uh, and execute that thing. But when you when you when you're writing it, you will naturally be building in new opportunities. You'll you because you'll understand how this interplays with the other stories. You understand more about your story world, and naturally you're gonna start lacing things in that if you hadn't done that work. First, you wouldn't have, which means then if you do all the transmedia opportunities after the fact, then one thing's gonna ha- one or two things are gonna happen is you're probably gonna say, oh, I need to go rewrite my script to be able to accommodate for all these things, but then it may not fe- feel natural or organic, or you're gonna say, I'm just gonna leave it as it is, and then it feels disconnected and you're not gonna get the uh, the 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 experience that you want. So so it's it's a balance, is is if you don't develop it as you're writing. I think you develop the plan, the broad plan from an IP perspective. This is my roadmap. The, uh, you know, if, if, if uh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drive from LA to New York and I'm gonna look at the map and I see my route that I'm gonna take. And this is the broad route that I'm gonna take, right? And I map that and I understand where I'm going and I understand how to get there. But eventually I need to get in the car and I'm not gonna be like staring at the map the entire time I'm in the car. I'm in the car and I'll make minor adjustments as I'm in the car. I'll get off of certain rest stops. I'll, get a, I'll, I'll maybe take a different road here or there, but I still already understand the direction that I'm going. The problem is I think most people like jump in the car and then even have a destination, right? They say, I'm just gonna drive. That ends up being more work on the back end. Me personally, I hate to rewrite. I hate rewriting. I think all writers hate rewriting. And so I want to minimize my rewriting process as much as possible, which means then uh, I think you, you just build, you build an, uh, an IP design, set that aside, and then go. And I think that, that the balance of that is sometimes tricky, and you kind of learn your way, but I think that's the best way forward. That's very interesting if you think about it in the sense that almost like what you're saying is that it's better to design a world first and then if you already have an idea for a character, try to find a way to fit your character into that world or develop a character that works well into the world rather than trying to design a world that your character can go into. Um, so like you have the world first and then you can then you can choose from a plethora of different characters rather than limiting yourself to a world with the character that you've already developed. Yeah. Yeah, when it comes to, uh, a lot of times people ask me, do you develop story first or story world first? I'm a big advocate of developing story world first. It's not story world or story, it's story world first then story. 
It's, it's like, uh, I, I, I liken it to uh, putting on your pants and putting on your shoes. Uh, you need them both. You need pants and shoes. You just put your pants on before you put your shoes on, right? Like that's, that's just the, that's the order. That's the best order. If you put your shoes on before you put your pants on, usually it's just a more difficult you know, way to go. And so uh, if it, sometimes you have an idea of a character or have an idea of a story already, and then what you want to do is just extract that character and extract that story, set them on the shelf, and then go ahead and develop that story world, then put them back in. But if you can design an independently interesting story world that is beyond just a single character or beyond just a single story, then you know now that the IP potential is is optimized because the the commerciality is attached to the world itself. But because if you do it the 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 opposite way, the commerciality and the high concept is going to be attached to the the character, and that that is that makes it risky because if people don't like that character, or in film and television, if that actor doesn't want to do the sequel, or if you know things like that, like it all of a sudden the 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 potential of your IP becomes very minimized um, and uh, it's dangerous to build around those characters. So I'm a big advocate of story world first, then story that operates within that story world. I think that's where that's when you're going to maximize that transmedia cross-platform IP potential. What suggestions do you have for writers on developing character? So for me, uh, you know, Hunger Games is no good without Katniss. Uh, that you, like you like Katniss is the end. Uh, Harry Potter is the is the end. Like you have to have a great hero, or your products don't work. Obviously, it doesn't matter how good your story world is. Doesn't ha matter how good your 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 plot is. You have to have a character that that people that people care about. And so when you know you're 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 talking about the individual journey of the character and how to develop the character, I think. Personally, it goes back to soapbox. I think it goes back to that thematic that you're trying to to create and develop. And if you know what you want to say, uh, then you will naturally know how to develop your character. And so, uh, because typically your soapbox will be um, be something that your character needs to learn. And uh, if if you know you you want to teach people how to uh, how to you know overcome disabilities and uh, or 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 you know if you go, go back to the Joseph Campbell thing about like you know achieving or, or embracing your destiny right so uh, neo story the matrix for, for example neo story is I think his soapbox that message of, of his character goes from uh, uh, you know somebody that that embraces their destiny and they have this tremendous destiny that they achieve that he achieves at the end really interesting character development that happens there but his starting point is him not him needing to find out the soapbox is he, he he's at a he's at you find him in a place where he he doesn't feel like he has any purpose any any great destiny at all he's stuck in a cubicle has a meaningless life and so his starting point there is is a great starting point because if you then when he achieves the soapbox at the end of the movie that's what creates the the development so I think you know uh, any any good screenwriter is going to tell you when you develop a character it's cool to I think add in a high concept to that character. I think it's cool to uh, uh, you know make that character interesting in a lot of different ways. But if you the emotional arc of the character needs to be rooted in what are they learning, 
what, what's their deficit at the beginning and, and, and how do they realize that soapbox toward the end. And um, that's what gives them the emotional journey. And I think if you tie that to the, it's basically like the A and B story, right? Like you have uh, your, your A story, which is the physical goal they're trying to achieve. So in Taken, the, the A story is all about how do I get my daughter back? But then the B story is, is basically how do, I, how do I become a good dad? And sort of the, the emotional deficit that he has in, is, is that he has in the beginning is what he learns toward the end of the movie, and so um, so it's tying those two things together. I think really makes the the good character development, but but from a transmedia perspective, I think uh, always understanding how to give your individual character a high concept and also giving them in, interesting looks. And this is something that like you can pull from from George Lucas is that is that. Darth Vader would not be as iconic if he was just a dude in a robe, right? Like I think there's something about the about the look of Darth Vader that makes him iconic. Uh, Boba Fett, uh, you know, characters that have interesting dress, interesting objects that they have. Um, uh, the, the the costume design I think goes a lot into what makes a character interesting. Good the Black Panther, I think you know that like the female warriors, the way they were dressed, the way they looked. I think that added so much to the character. And so um, there's a um, a uh, uh, one of my um, one of my friends in the transmedia community, uh, Jeffrey Long. He uh, he always he always says that to have an interesting character, they need to have an interesting silhouette. And uh, if the more interesting their silhouette is, then the more striking and memorable they'll be as a character. And uh, then you know, the more you do that, then the more yeah, I think the more story potential you're going to naturally have. Uh, but I think that you know, the gas in the car when it comes to character is what's their emotional journey, what's their physical journey, and you know, where's their starting point, how they how they end. But then if you can also layer in the high concept to them and then add in like sort of an interesting look with interesting objects, give them interesting secrets that nobody else knows. Uh, I think the little things right like that make characters awesome. Like I love the fact that Indiana Jones is scared of snakes. Like that's just a really like small thing to add into the character, but super effective that gives that, that interesting character depth. So understanding like what are your characters afraid of? What's a secret they've never told anybody? Doing that sort of work then, then even if you never reveal those things in your first story, in a transmedia world, those are things that you can kind of pick on and use as jumping off points moving forward. You know, I used the movie um, Quiz Show a couple times, yeah. but I realize I'm going back like probably 20 years, but sure. I find that a very interesting look at two characters. Sure. One who's actually not telling the truth, but he's regarded as the hero. Yeah. And the other one who's actually being honest and he's actually in a tough situation, being like henpecked and told he has to make more money, but he's actually painted as a villain. Sure. And I just think it's a very, I mean, it's based on a, loosely based on a true story, but maybe talk about the, like, wh why are we perceiving Ralph Fiennes' character as really the hero? This guy gets a, an applause from the subcommittee or whatever, and, and he's like praised as this golden boy. Sure. And John Turturro is actually the bad guy. Yeah. I, I think this is really interesting. Just, I think that is a commentary on culture of, of how we root for, for certain characters or don't root for certain characters. I mean, I always, the, the, a great example of that is, I think, is Breaking Bad. Of you know that Walt is doing bad things, even after he passes the point. Like at first, you justify it as like he's doing it for good reasons, but then like everybody kind of gets the fact that he's that he's doing it. He's he's breaking bad, right? And that's the whole point of it. But we're still rooting for Walt. The entire like we're still rooting for Walt. One of the most derided, like hated characters on that show was uh, his wife. 
Like people, right. like people didn't like his wife, and she, like you know, uh, she was a good person that wanted to do good things, and uh, and so she was the good guy. Walt's the bad guy, but the way we the way we cheer for them is 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 flip flopped, right? Uh, Forrest Whitaker um, uh, was I heard an interview with him when he he started on the Shield. If you remember the Shield on FX, and Vic Mackey, one of the greatest TV characters of all time, he, he's he's a bad guy. He's he's straight up a bad guy, but he's the protagonist, and and we root for him the entire time. Forrest Whitaker is the is the cop who comes to investigate him. He's the good guy. We we hate that guy. We hate the character, and uh, and it's just we we flip flop. Going back to an old Johnny Cash interview that I heard, is he he would talk about how how. Uh, when he would sing Folsom Prison Blues, whenever he would, when he, whenever he would deliver the line, uh, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die, crowds would roar. And they, they loved that line. And, and you're thinking, why would they like that? Like, why did they get excited about this character that Johnny Cash is portraying, shooting a man just to watch him die? This is a despicable, awful, evil thing. But I feel like that's a testament to culture, I mean, even in professional wrestling circles, right? I mean, if you take it to that, like Stone Cold Steve Austin was a bad guy <laughs> that people loved because he was breaking the rules. I think it's just a, an interesting commentary on people and how we, we lean into to sort of the bad boy, bad girl, uh, we lean into those. I mean, I think I think if you look at even the superhero stuff today, culture. There was a day where Batman and Superman were these square-jawed, wholesome John Wayne type of heroes. And superheroes today, now we love Deadpool. And I think that's just a commentary on culture and and how culture shifts over time. And you know, there was a time when the John Wayne War movie was ruled the box office but then in the Vietnam era like that began to turn to where we didn't want the square jawed like you know sun going down in the background and like the birds flying around and the, the patriotic music we didn't want that anymore we wanted something else and I think I think that's just a testament to culture and a testament to like the human condition and the human like the the human condition of the uh, the condition of the soul of the audience is is and I think you know we're trained as far as story. We're trained if you position someone as a protagonist, whether they're an anti-hero protagonist, whatever they are. So you you almost remove the the hero villain moniker. If a great storyteller positions a bad guy as a protagonist, we just will naturally root for them. I mean, for example, in Star Wars, they have like lines of comic books that where Darth Vader is the protagonist. And you're rooting for them, him the entire time, and he's a mass murdering magician, and 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 you still root for the guy because we're trained to root for protagonists. I think that's just like hardwired into our brains to where it makes perspective and POV really super important important to a storyteller understanding that because naturally we root for the protagonist whether or not or despite the fact uh, that they're that they're good or maybe they're bad. So as we've been talking about transmedia and, you know, this this idea of like trying to pull a bunch of stories from our story world, uh, where do you look to to try and craft that many stories out of one story world? Like what kind of like techniques do you use to to pull good stories out for all these different platforms across your story world? 
so people can get the theory and they can get excited about the model, but practically, what are the strategies to use to be able to identify jumping off points in story that maximizes the transmedia model? There's a couple ways that I think are very uh, uh, easy to identify. Um, and uh, one of them is unanswered questions. And so I think this is the easiest way to create transmedia opportunities, is identify unanswered questions in your script and or in a movie, in, in a TV show, whatever it is, unanswered questions, and then answer them somewhere else in a different platform. You know, for, for example, like in, you know, take the, uh, the, the classic example of uh, Pulp Fiction, what's in the briefcase? And if they, if, if, if they didn't answer it in the film, which I think was right for the film, kind of created a mystique around the film, but if, if today Tarantino uh, uh, launched a web series or a comic book series or a novel or something that was all about the briefcase and the guys to go get the briefcase and, what's in, and actually reveals what's in the briefcase, all of a sudden, like, that's a tremendous incentive for me as a fan of Pulp Fiction to go check that out. Uh, in in um, Inception, where you don't know at the end whether he's stuck in the dream or not stuck in the dream because he spins the top and they cut the film. That's an unanswered question. And so if they, if they answered that somewhere else uh, in an app or uh, a song or something, then uh, that's a transmedia opportunity. I, I like to think back to the... Um, um, Sofia Coppola's first film, Lost in Translation, at the end, Bill Murray whispers something into her ear and you don't know what he says. And that's an unanswered question. And if, if 20 years or 10 years later, however long that film's been out, if they re-engage the audience by, you know, whether it's a, a love song that reveals the line, maybe it's an email that Bill Murray's character sends Scarlett Johansson's character that the audience is CC'd on, that you get it in your, and remember that time I whispered this into your ear uh, in, in Tokyo, that all of a sudden is valuable for the audience. So if you go through a script and, and you, you can readily identify uh, transmedia opportunities that that you may didn't didn't know from the beginning of you know where did that character go when she went off screen why does he have a black eye what's behind that door where does that car go what are these guys talking about like like unanswered questions you can probably find fifteen in in a, a, in an existing script or pilot already that then is then a transmedia opportunity that you can split off and answer somewhere else or if you're creating a, a writing a script from you know square one with this knowledge, you will naturally build in questions that you know you're not going to answer uh, until you release this other thing in a different platform. And so, you know, a great example of that is is when um, uh, in in the Force Awakens and Star Wars, C-3PO has a red arm, and nobody knows why C-3PO has a red arm. It's an unanswered question. Well, then. Lucasfilm released a comic book, a one-shot comic book about C-3PO and how he got the red arm. It's such a simple, stupid thing that that isn't like, it's not rocket science. It's like literally play on the curiosity of people, pose a question, don't answer it, answer it somewhere else. It's like ready-made transmedia in a box. J.J. Abrams calls it mystery box, right? He's sort of coined this term mystery box of like the, 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 the human mind will always want answers to questions. And, and if you just build in intentionally uh, questions that you don't answer in your script, answer them somewhere else, maybe not immediately, maybe wait 10 years 
and wait until what you feel like your audience is starting to like wane and die off, and this is a way to re-engage them in, in a great way. In, in music, uh, you have uh, uh, Michael Jackson that says, Billie Jean is not my lover. Uh, sh she's just a girl who says that, uh, that uh, I am the one, the kid is not my son. The unanswered question is, is Michael the dad of this kid or isn't he? He says he's not, but we don't know. It's an unanswered question. So if today they released something that, that revealed whether Michael was the father of that kid, I would absolutely check that out, for sure. Right? The old, you know, I like to use the example of like my, my early college days when the Baja men had that song called Who Let the Dogs Out? And right? they, that if, if today the Baja men tweeted out, come check out my new album, I would never click that link. I don't listen to the Baja men. But if they, if, they, if they said, hey, click this link and actually find out who let the dogs out, I would, I would do that. Of course I would do that. And it's just a click, right? And then if they pay it off by going to the website and finding out Snoop Dogg let the dogs out, and now <laughs> there's a new collaboration on their new album or whatever, all of a sudden they got me to their website, but they got me by playing on the, the, the curiosity of, I always wonder who what the answer to that question is. So that's a great opportunity for transmedia. I think character backstory is a great opportunity for transmedia. We, you know, screenwriters deal with this all the time. How much backstory of the characters can we put in a script? The more you explore backwards, the less you're going forwards. And it's always this, this push and pull in a script because you only have 110 pages and a feature, et cetera, et cetera. So, so uh, if you understand the transmedia model, this is a tremendous tool for writers to say, I can still tell my backstory without overburdening or encumbering my feature script or my TV pilot, I'm just gonna tell the backstory somewhere else in a different platform. So maybe I have my, my, my feature script, maybe I have a, a, a short story that's the character backstory, maybe I have a song, maybe I have an animated short film that, that works as the backstory. Overwatch, the video game Overwatch, the, the, video, the video game's a first person shooter uh, and they don't tell you any story about any of their characters, on their website, they have the backstory of all their characters in animated short films that are tremendous storytelling tools. So they get the backstory, but they get it without overburdening or encumbering their video game. So they basically have their cake and they eat it too. AMC does this all the time. They'll, for all their characters and all their shows, on the AMC web, a website, they'll launch, launch digital comics that explore the backstory of all their characters, which is extended content for the fans, um, but, uh, but for creators it's great because we get the things that we love. We get the backstory that we love, but at the same time, we get a tight, efficient um, uh, script or, or TV show or movie that, that isn't encumbered. So that's another really super uh, easy way. Different, exp like different parts of the story world that you can explore. Uh, if you never show what's, what's in the basement of this house, then all of a sudden uh, a short story or a poem or a piece of art that, that shows what's in the basement, valuable co comprehension, things like that. There are practical ways to approach transmedia strategy that aren't that hard, that, uh, that aren't you know, rocket scientist type of things to figure out. Um, deleted scenes. I'm always a big fan of deleted scenes of, of them not just dying on a DVD special feature. Or, or you know, there's always scenes that, that we screenwriters have to cut out 
that we can't use because we're trying to come in at page length. And um, so I'm always an advocate of not, not deleting, but cutting and pasting. And you can take the scenes that you cut from a script or cut from a, a book or a chapter that you remove from a book or a verse that you remove from a song and just figuring out how to repurpose that into, into a different medium or different platform. Then it's a ready-made transmedia opportunity that's already written. Then, then maybe you figure out how to how to uh, you know turn that into an illustrated thing, or maybe you, maybe you communicate it through you know whatever it is a digital platform, make it a VR opportunity, or communicate it through augmented reality, something like that. Uh, I think would be interesting. So if if you had just imagine if you had um, uh, uh, scenes that were cut out of. Uh, Reservoir Dogs or, or Pulp Fiction or something like this. And then there was a mug that you could buy that was a Pulp Fiction mug or a Reservoir Dogs mug that you had an augmented reality app that you could hold up to the mug. And all of a sudden you you you, you can read or experience the, the scene that was cut out of the film 20 years earlier. That's awesome. I would love that. As a fan, I would love that. And then, and then as a fan, if you know fans would love that, then why don't you do that? You're wasting those scenes anyway, right? So identifying that narrative excess, uh, unanswered questions, uh, further story world uh, exploration and character backstories, all great ways to have tra like ready-made in-the-box transmedia strategy. How do you feel about the quote, never let your technique show? I mean, I think it's a good quote. I mean, I think, I think that is, um, I think the... I think skillful people, skillful people at their craft know how to do that well. I think, I, for, for example, I think story structure is great. I'm a big story structure nerd. I love, I love McKee and uh, Sid Field and Blake Snyder and all those guys. I love all that. Where story structure, I think, gets a bad rap is when people use story structure, but they're not good enough to cover it up and uh, and then it like they let the, they let the technique show. Uh, the great writers, though, I think, use the structure, and then they're good enough to weave such a tapestry around that structure that it's structured, but you don't care, you don't realize it's there. Uh, that's where I think the sweet spot is. And so in that regards, I'm 100% in agreement not to let the technique show. I mean, if, if it's like for me, uh, uh, it's. It's, you know, if you stripped all, uh, everybody down to the, the bones, all of your skeletons will look pretty similar. But, it, but the thing that makes us all unique is when you start layering in, you know, all the different aspects of how we look, even to the way we dress, right? Once we add in all that stuff, now we're all super unique and super different and super interesting. And uh, that, that, I think, is what makes us individual people. And so, uh, so people that let the technique show uh, are, I think, I think struggle with struggle with executing in such a way to, to like to bury it under their creative. I I think people take that quote though to mean that technique isn't good. Like technique is somehow a bad thing. That technique is somehow this like restrictive, uh, pejorative sort of a, uh, of a of a thing. Whether it's story structure, whatever it is, I think technique gets a bad rap in that way. So I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for strategy and technique, but the great creators, and this is where the art comes in, is the art comes in is how do you use the technique and use the structure and then layer on top of that so much creativity and such amazing ideas that people don't see it, though it's always there. 
Yeah, somebody left a funny comment on one of our videos, and they said, "Oh yeah, you, your tech, your your structure's great, and you have the inciting incident on this, but your your script is horrible. But it's still, hey, great structure, you know. I mean, essentially, sure. kind of making fun of the fact that yeah, if you don't have a, a great story, then all of that is wasted. Doesn't sure. matter. Mm -hmm. It's 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 uh, you know, it, entertainment is not paint by numbers." And that's, the, and that's the variable, that will always be the variable, is that whether it's Blake Snyder or Sid Field or, uh, uh, or Robert McKee, or whether you're doing super story, transmedia stuff, like you can have it all mapped out, but the great variable is, are you good enough to execute? And because yeah, technically your inciting incident could be here, and your your act two turning point is here, and you know, the dark night of the soul was here, and it's all placed very well, but but if you can't if you can't execute in a way that makes people forget about the technique, then then it's, I think it's just a reflection on your talent. Uh, or you maybe you just need to rewrite. Maybe you just you need to take some more time with it to be able to show your talent. Uh, that being said, I think technique is necessary. Sure. Uh, and, and and so I think a lot of times people throw throw, throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And saying, well, uh, you know, story structure, that's, that, that, we don't need that. Uh, it doesn't matter where your inciting incident is. Uh, it doesn't matter if you have three acts, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I don't go that far at all. I think that stuff is necessary. You just got to be good enough to make people forget about it. So we're a few months away from the final season of Game of Thrones. I was wondering if you could see into your crystal ball and see what their prediction will be for the final six episodes. Oh, man, that is such... That is such a large question. Uh, I think if what's interesting at this point is they is they've passed the books, uh, so so George R. R. Martin isn't completely driving the ship yet. If George R. R. Martin, if we're still operating in the George R. R. Martin's level, I would say everyone would die. Uh, I think now I feel like since they passed the books, they've kind of clicked into a little bit more of a commercial, like commercially understandable type of a story, which means we're not gonna kill everyone we love. Uh, and so, but at the same time, I think they're definitely gonna surprise you. It would it would be, I mean, I definitely think, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, Jon Snow uh, and, and, you know, Daenerys, um, I don't see them long term, I don't see them sur both surviving uh, I think it's going to be too easy for Daenerys to get the throne. I don't think they'll do that because if I, I think they're going to try to surprise us with something different. I think that um, I think somebody will get the throne that you don't expect, whether it's Tyrion, whether it's Sansa, uh, something like that will happen, which I think will be unexpected. Um, but it, but I think Jon Snow dies. Uh, I the, my my instinct is is that he dies. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's just like they've they've left it in such a such a wide open space that I, I don't know exactly where they're going with it. Uh, I'm notoriously bad for predicting things like this. Uh, and but they um, but what got got me excited? Yeah, I, I read recently that they um, that they're 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 the battle, the sort of the big battle that they have at the end of the season, uh, they shot for 58 days straight just to do one battle, which makes me more excited than I can ever imagine. So, uh, so whatever it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. Um, I, I, I think, I think, 
I, I don't think the White Walkers win. I think we're safe. I think I'm safe to say that. I think we beat back the White Walkers in a, in a way that's that's unexpected. Um, but I still think the White Walkers lose. And then I think, how do they pick up the pieces with the Seven Kingdoms? Uh, I'm going to go with the, like the dark horse. Sansa gets the Iron Throne with um, uh, Arya as her hand. With with either John or Daenerys dying, maybe even both. So these are these are my words, not yours. But are they selling out then? If they've gone past the books, and you say that George R. R. Martin is not fully driving the the metaphorical ship, sure. have they sold out? I don't think so. I mean, like, listen. I think if you can make people happy, that is the greatest achievement of an entertainer. Like whatever it, whatever it is, is is there's this competition between like between I can either make people happy or or preserve my artistic integrity. I think if 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 that is what you're trying to decide between, uh, there's something wrong because the point of of art is to have people experience it in an amazing way. That the whole the whole thing is about not just how do I create create something, how do I create something that makes other people happy, excited? How do I make people cry? How do I make people feel? That's the point. And so if you make something that people love and they cheer and they're excited about, and like that's not selling out. That's the point of entertainment. You've entertained them in a way that they're happy. I think doing stuff like The Sopranos, cutting off the end and, and it pisses everybody off, I am not a fan of that. Like I, I get like sort of the, we're gonna let you finish the story in your mind, that whole thing. I get, I, I get all that, but, but at the same time, I look, at, I look at entertainment very similar to entrepreneurship. Like you, 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 you are there to serve something to your fans that, that gives them a, a tremendous experience. And if they walk away pissed off and angry, then you've done something wrong. Not to say they shouldn't walk away challenged, I'm a big fan of like challenging your fan base. I think that's what The Last Jedi did. I think The Last, ba- Last Jedi challenged the Star Wars fan base in a good way. Um, but, but I think if they, if I think they'll go and they'll surprise people, I think, I think, but at the same time, I don't think they're gonna do something weird to where, you know, they, they, they make it ambiguous. I think it's gonna be clear. I don't think it's going to be left up to interpretation. I don't think it's going to be, you know, something unsatisfying and awful that's going to like piss everybody off. Like Joffrey comes back as a White Walker and sits on the throne for the rest of like eternity as like evil King Joffrey, the dead. I think that would just piss everybody off. I don't think they're going to do anything like that. But at the same time, I think they're going to do something unexpected. So, you know, I don't know, like, I'm all about Samuel Tarly taking the Iron Throne. That's cool. Or maybe they make the Iron Throne insignificant. You know, uh, I, I mean that. I think that would maybe thematically be interesting uh, because I think the, the sort of the soapbox of the of of the um, of Game of Thrones is all about. Um, hey, as we bicker over here amongst ourselves, there's something come to kill us, coming to kill us all, and so uh, we need to unite and 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 you know stand against that. In that respect, eventually, if like the Game of Thrones or the actual Iron Throne becomes of zero importance. Thematically may be interesting to where we now, you know, there's not one country or not one place that rules the Seven Kingdoms. It's a different sort of a setup. 
I don't think they'll do that because I think they only have six episodes. That's like a big restructuring of the story world. But I'm for Samwell Tarly surviving. I'm for I think I think I think Arya will I think Arya will f- finish her list. I think that Jamie is going to kill Cersei. And I think I don't think John and Daenerys both survive. I want to pick one or the other. And I think Sansa for the Iron Throne. That's my lock-in Super Bowl prediction. 